Hello, hello, and welcome to the first episode of Fishnets and Cigarettes, How Music and Fashion Change the World, where opulence and decadence reign supreme and the pursuit of beauty, romance, and eccentricity constitutes a way of life. We're hedonism mixed with mystique and rebels with a cause. So here we are, your two hosts. I'm Isabella. And I'm Stan. Let's get this started. There's two kinds of people in the world, as Stan actually reminded me in our early days of talking. Well, actually, it was his father. He provided this simple yet profound insight. There are two kinds of people in the world, the curious and the non-curious, and we're most definitely the former. I mean, yeah, I'd be surprised at how much research we've done in our spare time on this. It's been so exciting to, to kind of <laughs> go into these, all these topics we've got. We've got so many more to come. Um, you know, yeah, I think, you know, it's important to be curious about things. So, so you know, it's the, best, the easiest way to learn. No, and it's true. And if you take a look at us, you know, where we've lived, where we've traveled, our eclectic lists of passion, I mean... I'm a stylist, I design, I write, I'm like this glamour librarian, I'm rock and roll history nerd, I love 70s punk, glam rock, probably because of the glitter, always more glitter, man. You never have enough glitter. Never, man, on pants, shirts, faces, I love that. Um, but you know, really, I realized through all of this, and, and growing up really, that I have an intense love affair with the past, you know, the glamour, the romanticism, this nostalgia of longing for a time which... Really, I love with every essence of my being, but I won't be able to experience. It's kind of this melancholy, and it's inspired me and continues to do so to this day. Yeah, me too. You know, I always look to the past, but it's it's something we really have in common on, on this project. That, you know, we always look to a, what life was like at a different time and, and how we can you know learn from that for for now and for the future. I definitely. And I think both of us, you know, we never desired to really live ordinary lives. And we are attracted to periods in time where individuals really embraced what it means to be truly living, a truly human. And I really think that this pursuit of beauty, romance and eccentricity, it constitutes a way of being. And it's really our life's purpose. And there's something that's so tragic and beautiful about this desiring of something, you know, so much, such on such a deep level, and knowing we'll never be able to possess it, you know, like we'll never get to live in these times. We can research, we can read as many books as we want, but it will have this eternal longing. And it's quite romantic because it's what the darkest, you know, the poets, writers, and rock and roll singers, they've written about it, this longing. Yeah, and there's a kind of element of tragedy to it, you know, which always, <laughs> which always adds, adds to the drama. You know, you can't have beauty without tragedy, Stan. <laughs> Well <laughs> um, and you know, I think um, this whole journey has really been like Stan mentioned, we've read so many books, done so much research, and I've realized that, you know, my passions and interests have led me to amount a, a huge collection of books, and they're on all kinds of topics, but somehow they always go back to the same common theme, and that's decadent, uh, decadent, sorry. So they could be intellectually decadent, uh, physically decadent, or perhaps even emotionally decadent. Um, and this decadence really gives meaning to the mundane and helps us escape the trivialities of life. I mean, we're really going to explore decadence. And, you know, it, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's everything in between. But, you know, it always produces some kind of reaction. Of course. And I think, you know, if we look at the modern age, a lot of people have gone, you know, more towards this minimalism. 
And, you know, I basically just went the other way. And I don't know if that's like my contrarian nature, but I'm, <laughs> you know, but I mean, I'm a maximalist. I think you too, you know, more is more, more is definitely better. Yes, for sure. And I think that's also why we just love rock and roll, because it's one of the most decadent things we can still experience in our age. And, you know, much of history and its eccentric characters have faded into the background. And another reason we really started this podcast is we want to bring them back to the forefront. We want to change this and remind people of how much music and fashion has changed the world. I mean, I think it's even surprised us, the stuff we've researched, that, you know, we thought there was a lot of material, but actually there was a lot more than we realized, I think. Completely. And it's surprising, you know, how many things really are related to each other and linked. And, you know, a character in a certain time has a huge impact in a completely other time hundreds of years later. So that was insightful. And what else is amazing is that mo movements, even if rather small, and honestly, most of what we investigate are quite small movements, they have a huge global impact. So people fail to realize, at least most of us, that a lot of these iconic movements like the swinging 60s in London, it was a group of about 500 people. It wasn't huge, you know? It's such a small number when, when you think about the impact that the, the, the music and the fashion and you know, the attitude of that time. Completely. And, you know, so most people were really outsiders looking in and, you know, they were judging, wanting to secretly embody um, what they did so openly. And all of these reasons is exactly why we've chosen to start a podcast. And, you know, as the Ramones reminded us, because we're going to throw in a ton of music, rock and roll references while we go about this podcast, we got to keep rock and roll music alive. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Great. You know, what an introduction. Um, <laughs> you know, so uh, you know, Bella drove this project and, you know, it was really nice to be invited. I, I like being asked to do things, <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, this was kind of Bella's vision and then we kind of put it together. Um, so just a bit about me. I'm, I'm at heart a historian, really. Um, my first frame of reference is usually the past. Why do I like this song? Is it a cover? Did they steal something from an older song? Where's that coat from? Where, where's the style inspiration for that? Oh, How did it. you find that coat? You know, when COVID arrived, the first thing I did was buy several books about Spanish flu, the last global pandemic, uh, pandemic. and that was 100 years ago, almost exactly 100 years ago. And um, so I always go back to the past, but I've worked in music for a major record label, and um, I worked in football for some Premier League clubs, and now I'm a writer. Uh, I just finished my first novel um, in, in lockdown, <laughs> <laughs> um, which man. is a, a, a well-disciplined way to write, because there's sometimes not a lot else to do. Um, um, you know, when I was younger, I had a rebellious fashion sense, even when I was very small, um, and I read somewhere, it's very classically Aquarian, me and Bella are both into star signs, so look away now. <laughs> What's your sign, man? Um, yeah. <laughs> and she's the Libra, by the way, just so you know. Um, so, you know, but it's very Aquarian to use clothes as a signal um, to refuse to conform, um, and I've always been a little bit like that, and I think maybe, Bella, you're a little bit like that too? Definitely, definitely. Um, so I took a lot of inspiration from the past, and at one point I was a regular at indie gigs in a black velvet frock coat from Velvet Illusion in Camden Town, um, now closed. Uh, High-waisted women's trousers, Cuban heels, complete with white gloves and a white scarf. Um, God, I must have looked quite a sight, I think. I want to see a photo of this, man. Um, it sounds amazing. It felt like at the time we channeled 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s fashion on alternate days of the week for a different gig. You know, we'd go to a new rave gig and everyone would be in, you know, fluorescent colors. Um, or we'd go to like, you know, a, a, a proper indie gig and everyone would be looking like they were out of, out of a kinks uh, 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 kind of photograph. 
Um, but yeah, so, you know, my dad wrote pop music. So I was brought up to listening to, you know, everything under the sun, you know, from Cole Porter uh, through to the present day. Um, so my dad always told us pop music should not only be about great songs, it has to be about a great song, but it should also be sexy, subversive, rebellious and exciting. And I think, you know, me and Bella probably have that in common. Yeah. And also, I think the best people possess these qualities. Yes, for sure. The most interesting people. Um, so, you know, going back to this historian reference, you know, it often felt easier to look to the past to find these things. You know, I loved a lot of songs from the 60s, you know, and you'd see the Libertines in their red, you know, guards jackets. And um, I bought one in Camden, 60 quid. Coldstream <laughs> <laughs> guards, still got it. Um, and you'd look back to the kinks and the kinks would be wearing, you know, red hunting outfits, like fox hunting outfits with, with you know, white, white breeches. Um, when they were playing gigs and everyone's kind of stealing from somebody else, you know, when you're looking back and, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the kids on the street were wearing the jackets in Carnaby street in, in, in the kind of high up swinging sixties. So, you know, they weren't doing anything new. And I was like, where did they get it from? Um, so, yeah, so, you know, I like to tell stories as you probably noticed, um, <laughs> drinking the waters of knowledge and pour them out for anyone who wants to listen. So, you know, when Bella had this idea uh, for the podcast covering everything we've just talked about, it was very hard to resist. Um, so if Bella doesn't mind, I can tell you a little bit about how we met. If, dear listener, you're curious about this story. I think everyone is. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I should point out that, you know, I'm in Istanbul at the moment, um, where as a tourist, I, the restrictions they have don't apply to me, the curfews. Um, and Bella's in Vienna. Um, and what's, what's, what's the restrictions like in Bella in Vienna at the moment? I, I mean, so. we're also in lockdown for a while. So, I mean, we're both trapped in different ways. I mean, yeah, but, you know, I, I like that we're doing this podcast over, over two cities, almost two continents. Yeah. I'm on the Asian side. Um, anyway, so, you know, Bella and I first met, you know, with a, using technology too. We met on Tinder. Um, and I, I was like, who is this decadent girl with a dreamy look in her eyes wearing these jaw dropping clothes from the past? Who is this girl? Who is, who is Bella? Uh, we never met up and um, we became friends on Instagram. Um, and Bella's Insta handle is the eternal philocalist. Is that how yeah, you say philocalist, it? yeah. Yeah, and what does it mean? I have to look it up. So it, it means um, philocalist is really like a lover of beauty in all forms, like a mental and also physical. So beautiful ideas, beautiful concepts, physical things like clothes, design. So it's a person who eternally loves beauty. Well, you know, when I saw that and I looked up what it meant, and, you know, as a writer, I should probably have known, but it's always nice to have your vocabulary challenged. Um, I thought that was a beautiful way to look at the world. Um, you know, so I followed um, Bella's page um, for bits of history and music and fashion and inspiration sometimes, and it never disappointed me. So, you know, here we are in, I'm in Istanbul and, and Bella's in Vienna, and we're in the depths of this second wave in the winter, and we decided that we should... You know, despite never having met, we decided to share our passions and explore the stories of music, fashion movements of the past, and see if we could shine a light on, you know, the current malaise that we're in at the moment. Um, so let me tell you about the name, Fishnets and Cigarettes. So first we needed a name. Um, after about an hour, we trawled through song lyrics on a video call. Yeah, that was <laughs> honestly, we should have recorded that. That was gold too. Yeah, it was good fun. Yeah. Um, we stumbled across Fishnets and Cigarettes by the New York Dolls. Um, I'll be honest, uh, the song doesn't do the lyric justice. It's not my favorite song, but for our purposes, it's perfect. And, you know, it just stuck with us. It was so catchy. Um, and I think Bella can tell us a bit about the history of fishnets. No, I mean, completely. Fishnets have always been a little bit sub uh, subversive, a little bit counterculture. You know, we see them 
come to popularity really in the burlesque scene, in the pinup scene. It was always a little bit sexualized, you know, a bit naughty, taboo. Um, and they really started to gain more popularity in the punk times. But the punks also took huge inspiration. I mean, we'll cover that later. But they took huge inspiration from these different underground underground scenes, whether it was fishnets or leather or studs. Um, so their fishnets are super taboo. They're rock and roll. They're historical. So they're perfect for our purposes, really. You know, if you don't mind me saying, they always, I think they look good. Um, <laughs> As a man, <laughs> and, man. And, and revealing but not revealing kind of, um, kind of, you know, a, a, a visual that's, that I find really kind of, you know, exciting that like, you know, it's, I'm showing you something, but not everything um, in a kind of very specific way. Um, you know, women are very lucky with their fashion compared to men. It's so no, I would agree. A lot less of our, our bodies, you know, people want to see sometimes. You don't want to wear a fishnet stocking, just a, a one piece? Well, do you know, I was thinking actually, you know, um, maybe we'll get onto this, but I, I thought I might join you in the photo photo shoot, Bella. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll that, so let me get there. Um, okay. So yeah, cigarettes was the other thing. And, you know, cigarettes are, you know, a ubiquitous pleasure since we discovered tobacco. You know, when we found it, we'd started smoking it immediately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we can't Not, disagree. Um, <laughs> for like 500 years. And um, you know, here in Istanbul, everybody smokes. I can't believe how much people smoke. Um, they're drinking coffee, drinking tea, and smoking all the time, and you know, chatting and, and gossiping. Um, so cigarettes have been around forever, and, and they calm the nerves of the restless mind. People like me and you, Bella, who are a bit restless. I mean, I don't smoke cigarettes, but you know, I, I can see the appeal. No, for sure. I think we probably should smoke more. If I'm honest, <laughs> it do us some good with our minds always working. Well, you know, and the, but then we now know that they kill you. Um, yes. <laughs> it's hard not to argue that they look really cool. You know, sometimes loads of bands I've seen when someone's smoking a cigarette, you know, there's so many iconic photos. Um, it just adds some kind of, I don't know, something subversive, um, you know, something forbidden maybe now as well. Um, yeah, you know, so from pencil thin vogues to, you know, really stinky Galois French cigarettes um, to the multicolored Sobrani. Oh, I love um, that one. Yeah, we, we need to try and find them. Um, yeah. And Audrey Hepburn's uh, cigarette holder, they're all integral part of the look of the best musicians and fashion trendsetters. Um, yeah, so um, if you want to hear this story from the past, says the storyteller. You don't <laughs> have a choice. Tell us, tell us. Yeah. I'll keep it brief, Bella. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I had an utterly decadent kind of whirlwind 48-hour romance in Australia where, incidentally, cigarettes cost the uh, most expensive in the world. They cost about £25 a packet. Um, oh. This girl I met, she played me a song and it had these lines in it. She said, shh, champagne with a cigarette. And I was like, whoa, that's really, I love that. Um, and then she said, I'm wearing fishnets because I'm the fucking best. Uh, apologies for swearing. We can probably edit that out. Um, <laughs> those were hooks that stayed with me. And I thought, you know, it made me think of that when I saw the New York Dolls lyric when we were trawling through. Um, you know, and I, I knew that the, the, the symbol of our show was staring back at me. And, um, you know, Bella had this brilliant idea. Um, but it's quite a broad concept. You know, we want to talk to you about quite a lot of stuff. And um, so we're being quite disciplined. And I'm going off script a little bit here, but, but we're <laughs> quite, quite disciplined for, for, for you when you're listening. So, you know, it's kind of kind of bite size, I think. But um, yeah, so the final thing I wanted to say to kind of entice you into getting in touch with us, tell us what you like, what you don't like, was um, Bella, one of her many Renaissance woman talents, makes her own really decadent uh, lingerie. Um, so... 
after the fishnets comment then, and I thought maybe if you can, if anyone listening can find us the multicolored Sobranis, we <laughs> 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 to find them in Istanbul, but I think it might be harder in Vienna. Or the black um, and gold ones. I'll settle for both. Well, so me too. I mean, gold ones sound good to me if anyone could point us in the right <laughs> direction. Um, and maybe me and Bella can both do a photo smoking one of these cigarettes in fishnets. <laughs> Honestly, that sounds rock and roll. That sounds very New York Dolls, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it would be fun for sure. Um, yeah, so if anyone's interested in that, please let us know. <laughs> no, for sure. And you know what this makes me think about, Stan, is like right now we're actually experiencing a really similar atmosphere to what we've seen right before the start of a lot of these decadent movements. Right. You know, there's this period of loss, death, seriousness, followed by this period of decadence and escapism. And I know if I look in my own life, we all try to escape our pains or suffering by delving into another reality of magic and splendor. I mean, I'm so curious what's going to happen now. Is there going to be this like decadent resurgence after Corona? Like there's no guarantee tomorrow. So enjoy today to the fullest. I don't know what's going to happen. My, my curiosity is peaked. I, I really think like people's mindset has changed like, the most in my lifetime during this period about people's attitude to risk and people's attitude to kind of, you know, trying to make the most of what you have. And, um, you know, and my curiosity was peaked too. You know, I think we're both, one of the points of this podcast is to kind of explore all the stories from the past that might help us answer that kind of question. I think it's a really interesting question that you just posed, Bella. No, thanks, Stan. I mean, definitely we're going to have some interesting things happen the next couple of years. I just think we're not 100% sure, but that's what makes life exciting, right? Uh, for sure. So what's super interesting, I mean, if I'm kind of like going on this topic a little bit more, is that I think we're living in a time, and this is probably still something that a lot of philosophers have thought about. Now I'm becoming a philosopher. I do that from time to time. I'm a philosopher. Yeah, I'm definitely, I feel like I'm always philosophi philosophizing. I don't even know how to say that. About <laughs> is that something. It is now? <laughs> I, now I'm going to, now I sound, you know, I went to school for a long time and now I just threw that out the window. Um, no. <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to hear what you have to say. <laughs> no, but, um, you know, we're living in this time where people are dying full of regrets. So they care so much about what others think and they never truly are themselves and they end up living other people's lives, you know, so They'll tell you one thing, do another, almost if they're too afraid of the side they conceal. So people end up living these kinds of double lives where, you know, they're one way to society and have another often taboo side to them, which can be actually frightening to themselves and others. You know, like the happily married guy who secretly goes to hookers on the weekend because he's not actually happy and was forced to live a life he didn't want. I'm like, don't get me wrong. I don't have sympathy for this man. Like he chose the past, uh, the path most traveled, but I'm just making a point. And this kind of idea, and look, for each society, you have more or less hidden natures, right? There's some that are a little bit more that way, some that are less, but even in the 60s, you had this concept where like people were having these like double lives and trying to act for others. And it actually reminds me of um, the kink song, you know, well-respected man. Two kinks references in in the first episode before we even started, Bella. This is good, this is good work. Oh my God, I didn't even realize. But I think it's because you and we both, we have like this love for the kinks. I mean. You're going to hear more about the kinks. I, I freaking love it. Yeah. Um, and anyways, for people who don't know, the song portrays uh, basically the monotonous daily life of the middle class. And there's this underlying, brilliant, may I add, sinister, darker tone 
which is created through the characters like hypocritical and lustful desires, which don't really correspond to the life he's supposed to be living with this like middle class society. And if we look at the lyrics, it goes like, you know, while the father pulls the maid and he hopes to grab his father's loot because he's dying to get at her. So you get the impression that these aren't really particularly happy or nice people. I mean, he's having like an affair. Very cynical, very cynical people, you know, really cynical. Completely. And it's like they're, it's contradicting because they're trying to portray this exact image, which they're like nice, happy, respected people. But really the son, I mean, the father's trying to sleep with the maid. Then, you know, he's trying to get his dad's money to be with the maid. And it's all like this very hidden taboo thing. But on the surface, he's a well-respected man. And I feel like that is society, society's problem for the, I mean, for the last 70 years, maybe, or hundreds of years, if we're really being truthful. You know, the title of my novel, I, 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 I took from Jackson Brown from The Pretender. Um, you know, and the line is, uh, well, the happy idiot. It's, I'll, I'll, be a, I'll be a happy idiot and struggle for the legal tender. You know, and that's the total counterpoint to what the kinks are singing about, you know. But it's true. <laughs> it's, you know, you've not kind of surrendered um, to, to, to what you think you should do. And I think, you know, in COVID, I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm expecting, you know, when this is all, when the vaccine is coming, it's, it's we're further down the road, that people's attitudes will be different now, you know, like they were in the 60s and at various other times we're going to go through. Yeah. I mean, I hope so, because I think that, People need to start being themselves. You know, everyone will always judge you. You have a short life to live. It's better to be yourself. And the people who will love you will love you. And the other people, well, you know, they have their own life to live. And you just, you got to be you. And yeah, and it's, I mean, I guess it's clear that I'm definitely not this kind of person that cares too much what other people think. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't be living the life I do. I think Stan also not. (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think i've been in melbourne and in istanbul and and a bit in london in this lockdown and it's been yeah i'm not really doing what i'm not staying at home like from (laughs) no we're all i mean whatever people do i i do normally the opposite also stan you know how robert frost used to say like take the road less traveled i've been doing that since a kid i think both of us have a kind of rebellious streak we're both quite optimistic, positive people, but we also live life on our own terms, I guess you could say. Yeah. And, you know, I, I hope with this remoteness, you know, look at look at us doing a podcast from Vienna and Istanbul, you know, and there is a lot of freedom with, with, with a lot of technology we have. You can, you, you know, it's easier to kind of, you know, um, you know, to do something like this from, from such a distance, you know, at the time we're going to cover in this first episode, you know, you're writing a letter. <laughs> No, it's it's true. And, you know, I think that on our travels, um, I've realized, I think you too, that the coolest people are those that live life in their own unique way. And there's definitely a price to this and not everyone is willing to pay it. And I think history has taught us the same thing. The icons, the people we remember, they were always outsiders. They were different than everyone. They lived life on their own terms. The terms everyone wishes they could but not everyone had the courage to follow. And they're so confronted with these feelings that they were often judged by others who were unable to do the same. And this left them, I mean, very much open to criticism because they openly went against the common way of thinking. Conventional and, wisdom, you know, uh, it's, going against the conventional wisdom is, you know, perverse, but it's also sometimes healthy. You know, you, you need to challenge the status quo 
to, tr to try and make progress. You know, that's my kind of renaissance-based <laughs> kind of understanding is, you know, you, you have to challenge the status quo and you have to challenge the conventional wisdom in order to create new things. No, of course. You know, I'm not encouraging like re rebellion for rebellion's sake. You know, it's like, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? I'm not saying that. Rebel without a cause. Rebel you know? without a cause. I mean, you know, James Dean movie going, what was the point? And Cool Hand Luke is a little bit like that with Paul Newman, where, you know, what's what's he what's he railing against? Yeah. But, you know, we, we both agree that and this is from study. You know, this is not just me and Bella saying what we think. You know, <laughs> if you look at the past, you know, a lot of the creative processes were when people broke the rules. Or when they pushed the boundaries or when they tried to do something different, you know, think outside the box. These are all cliches for a reason, because, you know, we need to re remind ourselves of them so that we try and create things that are fresh and new and, and different. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think what we're really trying to encourage here and also spread through this podcast, really, is that be the one who thinks differently. You know, we can learn so much from our decadent predecessors and apply some of what they taught us through their actions to our own lives. You know, I'm tired of everyone's, you know, bullshit. Can I even include that word? We'll have to see. Well, I've already sworn, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, including my own bullshit, you know. And yeah. So come on, let's get down to business. Let's start our journey of decadence with a brief history of Marie Antoinette and as they called her Madame Deficit and <laughs> <laughs> which I love that and the scandals that plagued the halls of Versailles and actually Marie Antoinette really was an inspiration for me on my own lingerie line if you're interested in that so um, let's take a quick short break right now and we'll come back to you in a few okay welcome back to fishnets and cigarettes so as we mentioned, we're going to start this journey of decadence talking about Marie Antoinette. So let them eat cake. Perhaps this is the most opulent line of all time. I mean, the people are starving, but why not? It's a statement of such delusion of such decadence. To be honest, there's some debate surrounding this line. She I just want to ask Bella, are you, are, you saying, are you saying even though people were starving, it's still a good thing, even though it was incredibly decadent. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I would sound like a horrific person. No, I just wanted to check because I, I, I agree with you. Like, I think it's kind of it's so bold. Um, like I, <laughs> it's so bold, kind of exciting, but no, also you know so, so ignorant as well. You know. No, I'm not saying like people are starving. Like who gives a f? You know. Um, well, I, I didn't think you were, but it's just I, I didn't I didn't want people to be going, oh, my God, like, <laughs> no, you, you know, know, it's kind of the time where really, I mean, I don't want to go into a whole history lesson of Marie Antoinette here, but, you know, she was she became queen very young, was very naive. And I think she was kept so far removed from really what was happening politically, even close to home, that she didn't realize how much these people were starving. She really yeah. lived in her own palace, you know. Yeah, no, exactly. But I think it was important to make that point that, you know, for, for, for people who aren't so familiar with the background, because everybody knows that quote, you know. Of course. Everybody, everybody knows that. But also, you know, I would add just a quick one is that she was Austrian and the French public didn't like her very much. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, you know, so the, the fact that the story became so huge was partly because people wanted to, you know, have a go at her. Um, so, you know, just those two things are important to, to reference for that line, I think, for, for people who haven't who don't know the, the 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 kind of deeper past of Marie Antoinette. No, it's true. And, you know, it really was maybe they didn't have like the modern tabloid back then, but people love to basically ridicule and blame the, let's say, the famous or the, the royals of the time. Yeah, there's a lot of cartoons about this kind of stuff, lampooning people. You oh, know, of course. Very popular. 
and really horrible. I would actually say worse than the modern time. I mean, they they did things a lot of like sexual weird um ridicule. Yeah, the gloves were very much off at that time. Wokeness and political correctness. You you got you got you got uh, both barrels. It was real. It was real <laughs> cruel and crude back then. Um, and you know, even with this whole line, "Let them eat cake." There's, she may have not even said it, or she could have been referring to a brioche, which was, you know, a little bit of a more decadent bread than a plain one, but still not a cake. And she could have also really meant like, okay, the people are hungry, we'll give them what they want. Yeah, you know, brioche is relatively affordable even now. You know, it's kind of, it's, if, if, you, if you're low on money, a loaf of brioche will see you through a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and have some nice jam on there. You can, yeah, you can make delicious. it work. Exactly, yeah. There's I some know. strawberry jam, some bon maman, you know, something <laughs> on there. Delicious. So, I mean, look, we really don't know what she said, but, you know, for the love of opulence, let's just take the quote at face value. Right. And, you know, with a woman of elaborate gowns, jewels, laden with tragedy and mystery, and parties almost as infamous as herself, Marie Antoinette is the embodiment of decadence, at least in my opinion. I, I agree. You know, I think you know the, the images of her are beautiful. Some of the clothes she wore and the way she carried herself in a difficult time. She was a you know compelling figure. You know, you're drawn to her, however you feel. No, exactly. I mean, and what's interesting is the years following the Baroque period. So starting with Rococo, there were these people who wanted to provide a more frivolous and superficial take on the formal style, uh, style which preceded. So what evolved from this was a very decadent style um, of the wealthy. So I should say that, you know, Rococo and extravagance, which followed, was not for the mass population. So the majority of the French were, in fact, starving, right? They weren't doing so hot. Um, but, you know, if you were quite wealthy, you were entering a period of amazingness, you know? I mean, whatever you dreamed could be real. So probably it makes sense that this harsh contrast to decadence and opulence to a starving population is what eventually led to the demise of Marie Antoinette, you know? I mean, anyways, let's get to the fun stuff. The period was filled with mistresses that were no longer kept hidden, but shown often nude in the most grand lavish works by the greatest painters, like Boucher, for example. And the mistresses actually had better portraits done than the queens. So societal graces has gone out the window and decadence had taken its place. It, so it just, was, can I just ask with these Boucher paintings, like how kind of, you know, how kind of nude is this really like? <laughs> no, it could be <laughs> completely just, nude. Wow. So, you know, th and that's up in the palace alongside your, your wife, you know? <laughs> it could be because people, you know, they didn't care because you married, you know, because you wanted some more land, but you weren't necessarily in love with your wife. I mean, look, in more recent years, I do believe that the royals married for love could be. But, you know, in these times, it was really like, OK, what's going to be good for the family? So it was known that they had mistresses, but it still was a little bit hidden before. And well, then the French, the French in power still have a very interesting relationship to mistresses. You know, Francois Hollande, the previous president of France, was uh, he had his sans cassette. Um, I think she was an actress or a musician who he was, he was seeing, um, and he would go and visit her when he finished work between five and seven. Between five and seven. Well, you know what? Honestly, this is again going to be like unpopular opinions, but I don't care what the people who run our countries do in their personal life as long as they run the country well. That's the French position. They 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 believe in the you know the public sphere and the private sphere very exclusively. Yeah. So um you know the, they really don't mind. Um and your private life is your private life. It's so different to you know the UK or the US where the, 
tabloid press uh, in your business, <laughs> you know, and and it's people are held to a different standard, I suppose. But you know, I would also argue, just sorry to go off the point a bit, but I would also argue, I think that that the kind of standards have fallen as well. You know, it, people used to resign more over things than they do now. Um, you know, in the past, when people were even more decadent, people would genuinely resign when they thought they'd done something. They shouldn't have done. No, I know. I mean, definitely like everything has, the lines have become blurred and, you know, royals are marrying commoners and, you know, politicians are openly having affairs or, you know, admitting their sexuality. And of course, that's not all around the world. Um, but I honestly, like, I do think this is a positive um development. I mean, I'm a traditionalist in a lot of ways too. I think I'm a confusing person. I'm very, <laughs> yeah, I'm always all over the place, but you know, we both are people who we want to explore new ideas. We want to learn, but I also appreciate the past. And I, I think we must always remain elegant, you know, and do things in a proper way, which is, I think why I, I relate to a lot of these French sentiments, but I do think that, you know, what you do in your personal life is also your business, as long as you're not harming someone, you know? Yeah, that's a utilitarian position. I agree with that. You know, do, 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 as long as you do no harm to someone else, what you're doing is is okay. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, Marie Antoinette, I feel like, you know, she had a whole a lot of lovers herself. So she was definitely on this kind of... This... Trajectory. But, but also, I think, you know, it's important to point out, just before you continue, that, that she was, you know, also in a difficult situation. She, she didn't speak the language particularly well when she arrived. She was very young. Are you trying to defend her now about having these affairs? <laughs> <laughs> this Aquarius God. I'm trying to give you some more context, but go on, continue. continue okay, and okay, let's also be real. I wasn't going to talk about this, but let's just lay all the cards out on the table. Is that they actually didn't consummate their marriage for, I think, seven years. And it's rumored that her husband was like initially impotent, actually. So, wow. yeah. Well, I remember watching Versailles. There was the BBC series, I think. Um, did you ever watch that Versailles? I watched a couple of episodes. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It wasn't particularly accurate, but I've really got a sense of the decadence. You know, when it was being filmed in Versailles. I mean, you know, it's. It, it, you know, imagine living in Versailles. Like you're going to be decadent. You know, you're in this one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. No, exactly. And you know, I think it was. It was such a strange marriage, if I'm honest, because. You know, Marie was this woman who was full of life and joy and loved beauty um, and just incredible. And she loved to have parties and have fantasy. And here she's married a man who just liked to tinker with his watches and uh, with like clocks and was just completely uninterested in really socializing or really taking part of this decadence. So she kind of, I felt like, pushed even more into this world of decadence to escape her marriage. Right. I mean, I get it, right? You're in this weird situation. You have so much pressure on you to produce the next heir to the, you know, to France. And then, you know, you, you can't even, you know, complete the task, I guess I can put it in those words. You're not allowed to complete the task. You're not allowed to complete the task. And you try really hard, you know, she tried. But, um, you know, like people openly hated Marie Antoinette, you know, because she loved opulence and she loved glamour. And she was this wild child. I mean, she threw lavish parties. She slept till noon. Each year she commissioned hundreds of gowns and elaborate hairstyles. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, in you look at the numbers each year, she commissioned 300 plus gowns a year. And because of this, she was actually a key factor in supporting the French silk industry. 
Well, that's an argument for the royals today that they're good for tourism. So, you know, well, well done, Marie Antoinette, for supporting the French silk industry. <laughs> I know, but the problem was when she started to wear kind of these simpler, you know, muslin gowns, many of the French silk manufacturers went out of business and they blamed her initially because she was like the perfect scapegoat. But really, it wasn't just her. I mean, overall, there was like this trend at the time that aristocrats and royals were going towards, you know, more simpler things towards the, the later years of her life. Right. So it wasn't her, but, um, you know, to her dismay, she was completely oblivious to the realities of the starving people. You know, I mean, I get it. You know, I'm a little bit of an escapist. Fantasy is often more fun than reality, especially. Well, you're in lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> yes, man. You know, and especially if you're the queen of France, you know. Yes, that too. That also, we, we could, you, you get a pass as well. <laughs> I mean, I, but she was cool. I mean, she once styled her hair into a replica of a French warship. I mean, how amazing wow. is that? Wow. I think I've heard that story. I think I've seen a painting of it, actually. It's incredible. Like, yeah. I that's... mean. Yes. Like she spent money like it was going out of style. I love this kind of woman. And, you know, she <laughs> threw extravagant balls. I mean, with like rich food, exquisite wines. But then like this was like, OK, you can expect this. You know, she's queen. But to like put the cherry on the cake of decadence here. She had a tiny model farm built on the palace grounds so that she and her ladies in waiting could play dress up as milkmaids and shepherdesses, you know, because the palace, it wasn't enough. Wow. A rural, a pastoral dream. <laughs> yeah, because you know what? Sometimes it gets heavy and you just want to forget your queen and pretend you're a common milkmaid living out yeah, your days you on milk a farm. cow and drink the milk, you know, it's a simple life. <laughs> and she did it, you know, I mean, <laughs> and, um, I mean, okay. What I should probably say is that there was a lot of rumors about her especially about her sexual activities and intimate affairs with men uh, and women, but most were not true and actually designed to sabotage her because like she was subject to quite a lot of sabotage. Of course. Be <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, um, it's often done when people are jealous, even in our, our time, right? Like people are jealous of what you have, of how you're living your life. They don't like it. So they try to, I don't know, make themselves feel better by like putting you down. It's kind of, right. you know, humans haven't changed so much in these years. Um, and what a really cool story. I think maybe it's quite known is this affair of the diamond necklace. So it's quite a long story. But if we summarize it, basically, there was a Parisian firm of jewelers and they created a necklace and it had no less than 650 diamonds. So 2600 carats. Wow, that, I mean, that's, that's a serious, uh, it's huge. <laughs> a serious and, amount of diamonds and a very high number of carats. Wow. It's huge. It's and the modern value of it is also greatly debated, but it's at least 15 million. Some people could say hundreds of millions. There's a big discrepancy here. But anyways, like back to the point here, they tried to sell it first to Louis XV, and it was going to be for his mistress, Madame Duberry. And there was a great portrait of her too. If anyone's curious, Google that. But he died. So basically what they tried to do is to his son, uh, Louis XVI, they tried to get him to purchase it for Marie Antoinette. But she wasn't so delusional after all. And even though she loved a sparkly thing, who doesn't really? <laughs> I, think I, have, I think I would have liked that necklace to go there. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's gorgeous. I'll, if you haven't seen it, guys, definitely Google. Yeah, I, I haven't Googled it yet. So actually, I'm, I'm going to do it too. So. No, it's, it, no, it's completely <laughs> it's gorgeous. It has like multiple layers and like bows and diamonds. It's gorgeous. But she actually encouraged against it because she's like, look, we can invest this money 
in the French, you know, Navy, probably better right now. So let's hold off. But, but you know, sounds like a good state, you know, a good regal decision there. The best of the best of the country for ex- once. <laughs> exactly. But you know what? Of course, you know, uh, history is not really running smooth around her. So what ensued was an elaborate scandal involving a prostitute dressed as the queen. Of course. Secret meetings, falsified letters, and those trying to force their hand to steal it. So it's a real messy story. And in the end, look, um, people realized it wasn't her, but her image was even more, um, I guess, soiled because, again, it looked like, and, you know, they didn't have the internet back then. So once there's like a rumor about you back in the day, it's hard to like clear your name because information may not, you know, get to people. Yeah, I mean, it's still hard to clear your name if you, if you, if you, if you, you know, people think there's microchips in vaccines at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> God. And you know what's so funny is the people who are doing all kinds of drugs are the ones who are like, I'm not going to inject stuff into my body. And you're like, you oh, literally take chemicals. Yeah, yeah. I know. And I'm like, well, okay. But, you know, humans are not logical, as we've kind of seen. No, as, as we're going to find out, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And um, so, okay, a lot of people were rubbed the wrong way. And... I think what we have to point out is at the time France was saddled with a massive amount of debts, especially military debts, the wealthy elite paid no taxes. The commoners were taxed with an inch of their lives. Yeah, they had the tithes. They paid the church as well as paying the state. I mean, could you imagine having to pay the church on top of <laughs> your little on your, your paycheck? You get a little. <laughs> also paying the church twenty percent of your salary. No, but even in modern day, you know, even in Austria, you pay part of your um, taxes to the church unless you you know sign off of that. So, uh, what I wanted to actually, yeah, weirdly enough, we're back at that topic. Is that a lot of time has passed, hundreds of years, but we have. A- a lot of these similar problems now, you know, the wealthy elite... We've already elite, picking them up. I mean, you know, just talking about it. No, yeah, we are. I mean, we still have countries where a lot of the wealthy pay little tax because they get away with certain things. Um, you know, you have um, just a lot of the similar problems are remaining. And you know what they say, right? History repeats itself. Yes, you know, and those those who don't read history are doomed to, to, to repeat the mistakes of the past. Of course. And I think, you know, me and Stan are both, you know, we're history nerds. Like, okay, maybe we dress cool, but we're nerds, you know. <laughs> we're like cool. nerds. Wow. If only you could have told 14-year-old me that, Bella, he would have been so happy. <laughs> we're like nerds with like a rebellious cool outside. No. Um, but it's true. Like the more you start reading, you realize how true it is, how much history repeats itself. So pick up a book, guys. I mean, do yourself a favor. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, reread a couple of books for most topics or, or, or lots of articles and put it all together. So, you know, if you like listening to it, you know, we can be we can be the library for you. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I, I tell that I'm a glamour librarian. Anything glamorous, I'll read about it, you know. Me um, too. And the cool thing about Marie Antoinette is, you know, she was a style icon. You know, regardless if you love or hate her, people have mixed feelings depending on what you prioritize in life, I suppose. Um, and, you know... She inspired countless designers in the years that followed her to her decadent fashion. So you have, for example, the Chanel Cruise Line in 2013, Dior Couture Fall and Winter 2014, Balenciaga Spring and Summer 2006. You have Oscar de la Renta Spring Summer 2013, Hervé Leger Spring Summer 2011, Fenty and Puma. And even recently, a few months ago, this past fall, Machino did a Marie Antoinette inspired fashion show. So there were towering hairstyles and copious amounts of ruffles, 
satin and brocade gowns, cake-inspired frocks. I mean, I love a good ruffled sleeve and velvet. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> I mean, that, that definitely, we, we have a mutual love of velvet. So even hundreds of years after her death, her decadent reputation continues to inspire. I mean, there's so many designers, even I've mentioned a few, but there are so many more. Did you have Simone Russia down there? Did you did you say that wrong? Because my friend works works with them. I so Simone Russia, yes, it's also 2014 fall winter. Yeah. Right. You know, Lizzie, Lizzie, with the Marie Antoinette inspiration, which since you found it, found its way onto our little podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it all comes, I guess, back together. But it's just incredible, like how much one person can inspire everyone. And it really, again, the purpose of our podcast is how music and fashion change the world. And we can see it. I mean, we're now really just at the beginning, but I'm amazed that, you know, someone from 300 years ago can be an inspiration for fashion designers on that kind of scale at this time. It's amazing. I know. I mean, but there's a couple of people that we're going to talk about that I think we'll see. It's like a similar trend. But I also wanted to mention, you know, that next to her role in fashion, she played a vital role in the political changes France saw afterwards. And the cool thing, Thomas Jefferson, who's an interesting figure himself, um, actually said more about that. I don't think he, I don't think he fits our topic, but we can we can do we can do a little <laughs> section if people are interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stay on topic. But he said something like, "If I ever believed that there, um, if I have ever believed that there had been no queen, there would not have been a revolution." So, even though Marie's focus on fashion and fun was her downfall, she actually have been the exact kind of mess that France needed to kickstart democracy. So it was with a love of fashion and decadence that led to a political uprising and eventually leading to the establishment of modern France as we know. I mean, decadence creates modernity. What a cool revelation. Well, I mean, you know, it may well not have been intentional, but she had an impact. No, she did. And, you know, although it was her opulent tastes which led to her downfall, there's no denying that Marie Antoinette was a lover in every sense of the word. She loved beauty, creating the arts and adventure. And this lust for life, to quote Iggy Pop, was destructive, but incredible to witness even all these years later. I love that you framed that with an Iggy Pop reference. You know, I got to mix mix the past and the 60s and 70s. We got to... It makes total sense, that that quote, you know. And, I, and again, like I said, I'm amazed with the, the, the impact she still has on fashion in the last 10 years. It's stunning, really. No, oh, she... she all lined up like that. She, so let's, let's use some more music references. So I'm going to change the lyric of T-Rex, which is my all-time favorite band. Let's just give them some, some praise. You can hear more about T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, that when we're talking about the 60s, we're going to praise T-Rex, Mark Volan. In heaven, if you're listening, <laughs> we love you. No, um, but we'll, we'll, tell you, we'll tell you when. <laughs> we will, we will. And um, so I'm going to change the lyrics of their song Telegram Sam to Telegram Stan in honor of my co-host. Oh, wow. like You're you my main man, so take it from here. Oh wow! So yes, so, I mean this leads us nicely onto uh, uh, an iconic uh, uh, figure in men's fashion. So um, George Bo Brummel. I'm sure you've heard of Bo Brummel. You know, from there's there's a movie and a t couple of movies, a TV series, and even a band named after them. But so what he did was invent the modern suit, the suit that we wear today. In in colours and cut, it's essentially the invention of Bo Brummel. He pared back the foppish frippery of bewigged, bejeweled, powdered, ostentatious dress of the late 18th century, the kind of stuff that Marie Antoinette was wearing, particularly in her silk period before she moved into the kind of the plainer muslin. Honestly, and, love it. <laughs> yeah, and, and was replaced with, you know, simple, sober colours. You know, the, the classic uh, painting of him is he kind of a blue kind of frock coat with buttons, 
You know, they're fawn, but trousers, not breeches, and very kind of understated, um, but, you know, beautifully cut and beautifully tailored. And um, so it, this, this kind of fashion style marked the move into social equality for a lot of, a lot of men, where, you know, it, it was a lot more utilitarian, kind of like how Sweden is today, where you can't really tell how much people earn by the clothes. You know, they're just more beautifully cut. Um, you know, so it was no longer about showing off how rich you were but showing class and taste and style with simple, beautifully fitted clothes. And um, the wearers of the previous style, the Marie Antoinette, you know, the powdered and bewigged stuff, you know, they were known as fops. Um, and wearers of Brummel's kind of understated style were called dandies. You know, and we, we, fops has kind of gone out of fashion, I think, but, you know, we still use dandy. Um, I mean, I know, love a dandy. A dandy is like in my soul. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I always thought, you know, that was what I was aiming for with some of my more ridiculous outfits. Was to, <laughs> Are they <laughs> ridiculous or iconic? Yeah, you know, it's, but it's stuck with us, which is amazing, you know. So, it, it, you know, he was born in 1778. So, you know, this is a long, long time ago. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, he's actually a contemporary of Marie Antoinette, isn't he? Yeah, and it's complete. Yeah. It's crazy that he was just embraced such a different style. I mean, amazing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, there's the TV drama... Uh, uh, Bo Brummel. It's called This Charming Man, which is, of course, a Smith's reference. <laughs> <laughs> Look at us, man. <laughs> People can't leave adding a reference into Bo Brummel. Um, it's everybody. Um, so the director uh, uh, riffs on Quadrophenia, um, where the mods and the rockers fought on Brighton Beach, um, you know, um, which we'll probably cover later on, um, by showing Brummel and his valet beating up a pair of fops after they hurled the, the terms at one another as insults. So, they, you know, they call each other fops and dandies and then Proceed to have a fight. <laughs> <laughs> how English, you know, how English. <laughs> so, uh, born in 1778, Beau Brummel is the son of the Prime Minister, Lord North's private secretary. So, you know, fairly, you know, not kind of very high up and very rich, but kind of very comfortable just underneath. Um, so he went to Eton and his first foray into fashion was to add a gold buckle to the Eton cravat or the necktie. So, you know, even with a strict uniform, you know, you had to wear a top hat at Eton, um, I think up until very recently. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was probably, you know, only about 20, 30 years ago that you, the, the, the top hat was removed as a compulsory item of clothing. I think that's iconic in itself. I love yeah. that. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the, there was a, it, but messing with it is kind of very bold, even at this time, you know, yeah. doing his own kind of take on it. And, you know, he's obviously still quite young then. Um, and so after a year at Oxford, he went to Oxford for a year, only a year, I think he was only 16, um, he joined the 10th Hussars, which was the regiment of the Prince of Wales. Um, so I would argue that here he got his biggest inspiration. So the Hussar uniform, they're a cavalry, cavalry unit, dashing, you know, very well-dressed cavalry unit, the Hussars, they're light cavalry and go places very quickly. So the Hussar uniform consists of a, a, a dolman, and um, which is the tight jacket with the gold frogging that recently became a, a must-have item for women's fashion about five, seven years ago. I mean, Bella, you can probably explain that better than me, but it's that military-style jacket. Ah, uh, yes, with the tassels and the ornate buttons. I love it. I own one myself. I mean, they, they come in and out of fashion for the last, like, 15 years quite frequently. But it's yeah, cool. Yeah, and so it's amazing for me seeing it as a historian because this is what male cavalry officers wore into battle. Yeah, you know, some of the colours were amazing. If, if, if you have time and you want to Google it, the French Hussars had pink ones. I love that. The pink. French, I mean, the imagine being charged with a moustached man, you know, <laughs> wearing pink who's trying to kill you. Honestly, I'd <laughs> let him I'd let him kill me. What a way to die. So aesthetic. Yeah, 
some, some of the uniforms are amazing. So, you know, I, I really think he got a lot of his inspiration from these. So, you know, they don't just have a dolman. They also have this, this other item, um, which is a police, another French word. So it's a fur-lined jacket of a similar style to the military jacket, but you wear it pinned off one shoulder. So your, your arm's not even in it. It's like a kind of cape. So, and so it flaps in the breeze when you're riding. And if you get really cold, you put it on because it's it's fur lined. So, so it's, you know. it's actually not practical. It's more just it's not practical at all. It just looks really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's how we explain our, our styles. Like, is this practical with your snakeskin pants, Bella? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, yes, it is. It's highly practical. It's highly like, practical. You know, the reason they had it on one shoulder was because it was for your sword shoulder. So mm. you're trying to keep that one warm. You know, like baseball pitchers put the baseball jacket on their shoulder when they're when they're sitting in between innings to keep the the, the, the working arms warm. Okay. And it was the, that, that was the practical element. But I mean, it just looked so cool. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, this is what he's wearing, you know, and it's effortlessly elegant kind of outfits, the cavalry. They were the real dandies of, of all the armies. Um, so, you know, cavalry breeches or jodhpurs, you know, which again, women wear now for fashion as, as, as well as riding horses. Um, you, you know, the cut is incredible. You can get them like leggings kind of cut, you know, they're so close. And these are, these are, you know, cavalry officers wearing these. Um, and the headgear was even more, you know, decadent. It was a fur busby. You also had a second uniform where you wore a kind of um, stovepipe type shako, but the busby was the traditional Hussar one, and it's completely made of fur. Um, oh. And it's really beautiful thing to see. Um, so, but the colors for Beau Brummel were important too. So, you know, this is his first, you have to wear the uniform all the time. And his cavalry regiment had, you know, a lot of types of uniforms. There's like 15 or 20 variations. For, for, for eating and 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 um, so the, the colors of his regiment are important for the modern suit right so most modern suits are, are navy and the 10th Hussars uniform was this dark navy color um, which had a, a, a silver silver frogging um, mm -hmm. and you know the, the cut and the style of this cavalry uniform were to prove the building blocks I think of, of what Brummel tried to do so um, his father had left him an inheritance of 25,000 pounds um, Brummel was entitled to a third of it, which was a lot of money at the time. He quickly burned through it. <laughs> <laughs> As the most decadent people do, let's be honest. Yeah, gambling, and he's with the Prince Regent, hanging out, you know. Um, so uh, in the cavalry, you have to pay for your own horses. You have to pay for all these uniforms. This and is the crazy. Bill, drinking champagne, you know, and port and claret and, and stuff. So it's very expensive. Okay. Um, and the Prince of Wales regiment was very elitist because he got all his rich friends into it. So it was a... It was kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of the coolest one to be in. Yeah, um, yeah. Brummel, who came from a more humble background, took, took it by storm. Um, you know, the first gentleman of England, that they called him, by the force of his personality. Um, he was allowed to miss parade, shirk his duties, in essence, do just as he pleased. Um, but within three years, he was made a captain to the envy and disgust of the older officers who felt that our general's friend, the Prince Regent, was now the general. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, he uh, rubbed people up the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everyone, every decadent person does. Like, it's just a trend. And, you know, he just was, he just could annoy anybody, you know. Um, so, you know, if my family ever listened to this uh, up north, they're from near Manchester. And this is typical of Brummel. When his regiment was posted to Manchester from London, he immediately resigned his commission, citing, quote, the city's poor reputation undistinguished ambience and want of culture and civility. I mean, can we say has much changed since then? 
<laughs> I'm gonna rub I mean, my family in Manchester. I'm, I'm not gonna say anything bad about them. No, no. Yeah, but, Love you guys, um, family of stands. It, it's a very, it's a very cutting thing to say. You know, I mean, of us southerners we have a saying for you know we say it's grim up north. No, but it's true. referring to the weather. But you know, for him to say that and resign is a really kind of decadent gesture. <laughs> it is. He's like, I just am above this. No, but you know, I think it's good to also be able to like take the piss, you know, and just joke about all of us because we all come from places where you could say something. But I think it's amazing. I mean, he just didn't care. That's really what it's about. Well, you know, he probably, you know, he wanted to be near his tailors in London. You know, I mean, I understand. Yeah. My tailor is perhaps one of my best associates. Wow, just you know, that's. I think that's a good. That's a good. Uh, symbol for fishnets and cigarettes is you know i'm, I'm going to get a soup made here in istanbul so i'm looking to get a tailor and i'm so excited about it a tailor, having something handmade is amazing you need a good accountant doctor lawyer definitely and tailor <laughs> wow how libra is that you've got everything covered there i got it all man <laughs> As an Aquarius, those people are usually just friends. <laughs> <laughs> You're friends with everyone. All Me, who gets stuff done, is my lovers. That's the Libra versus Aquarius. My lovers yeah, well, are my friends. Your friends are your friends. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, so back, so back to Brummel. Um, at this time, you know, we were talking about um, having your hair powdered. The, the Prime Minister, William Pitt, in 1795, put a tax on hair powder. Um, and so there was a response among young men who were called the crops who kept their hair natural and, and, and cut it quite short. And Brummel was really at the forefront of this. So kind of the modern man's haircut also arguably came from Brummel, you know, short back and sides and do you think, <laughs> was, oh, was sorry, what sorry. Brummel did. So Stan, do you think that they did this largely because of the tax or did it just coincide? Well, having a wig was expensive anyway. You know, you had to, you had to look after it and it was expensive <laughs> to buy and you have to powder it, it and then put it on top fleas. of your hair and the rest of it. Yeah. So, you know, I think there was maybe a utility, you know, response as well. That like it's not only expensive to do the wig, but now I get taxed on the wig powder as well, and you know I'd rather not wear it. Okay, I get it. Cool. So kind of a rebellious thing, I suppose. Yeah. But and you know, Brummel combined it with his fashion, where he kind of everything was pared back. So you know, the hair was pared back, and so was the so was the so were the clothes. Um. So anyway, so he's he's now a civilian because he's resigned his commission, so he doesn't have a job or any money. <laughs> <laughs> But he still has um, decadent tastes. Yes. So, so he's still friends with the, the Prince of Wales. He's still his confidant. Um, <laughs> so, you know, someone described him as yeah, understated, but perfectly fitted and tailored bespoke garments. This look was based on dark coats, full length trousers rather than knee breeches and stockings, which is what everyone used to wear before. Um, so, you know, the full length trouser is Beau Brummel's invention. And also, uh, you know, an immaculate shirt with, with, with a knotted cravat, which is we now do as a tie. So, you know, this uniform for business and for men is basically created at this time, you know, over 300 years ago. I mean, it's incredible. Um, and also created by one man. I mean, okay, you could argue there's like a movement, but he really was at the forefront. An unemployed man. <laughs> <laughs> but a decadent unemployed man. Right, he's actually doing something. At least he achieved something. It's um, true. So his, his fashion mantra was the maximum of luxury in the service of minimal ostentation. And, you know, I like a bit more ostentation, and I think you do as well, Bella, but actually, this is an amazing sentence to describe, you know, having, how, how, how to dress yourself. No, it is. I mean, it's, you say, like, less is more. Exactly. You know, I mean, Bo Brom was obviously using too many words because that's his style. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that our style too? <laughs> like... So, you know, the, the elegance was about the cut and the quality rather than, you know, ostentatious colours and decoration. 
And um, so there's another quote from him where he says, if John Bull, who is the kind of cartoon English British guy, the bluff average British guy, turns around to look at you, you are not well dressed, but either too stiff, too tight or too fashionable. So, you know, if anybody pays too much attention to you, you didn't get it right. And um, it should be effortless, you know. Um, OK, OK. But, you know, I think that's just him being difficult again, to be honest. So he, he, he pioneered this kind of off-white shirt with a dark suit as well, mm -hmm. which is what he wore in the cavalry, but it wasn't standard for kind of civilian dress. Um, and, you know, now most business most businessmen wear a, you know, a white or an off-white suit, um, with a, with a, sorry, a shirt with a, with a navy suit. Um, you know, I, I think probably the best-selling men's shirt is white or cream. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, so the tailors of Savile Row met with his every request. Um, he requested his boots were polished with champagne. Does that work? Because I love that idea. <laughs> well, also, Britain was at war with France, so it was also kind of two fingers to Napoleon as well, um, using the champagne to clean his boots. Oh, my God, um, I love it. And he spent uh, hours trying to tr tie his cravat perfectly, um, and he'd often leave a heap of them on the floor for the servants to, to clean up. So he'd do like, you know, 20 or 30 before he got it right. Okay, so he, he also house. had some obsessive tendencies. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, so if you're ever doing your tie, guys, at home, you know, if you, if you if you don't get it right on the third attempt, just go. Don't worry. <laughs> exactly. Both of would have been there for another hour. Yeah. Cut your losses. Um, well, you know, and, and Beau Brummel had another thing, right? So, you know, what have we got so far? It's it's the trousers, the suits, the, the haircuts, and he also had this elaborate grooming routine. Of course. Which was bathing and using personal hygiene instead of perfume and powder to cover up how dirty and smelly you were. Um, <laughs> So, you know, he basically said you should wash every day in hot water, you know, preferably twice. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how people are like, no, that's mad. Yeah. So, you know, he, he's changing quite a lot of stuff here, you know, all at once. Um, and he was really quick witted. So, you know, had this languorous indifference. And, you know, he really was kind of quite rude to people. He was kind of, you know, very acerbic kind of wit. Um, you know, a bit like Oscar Wilde, who I think we're going to come on to. Um, he had that real kind of, if he wanted to, get you with his wit he could no I love um, that so go on no I was just gonna say I love that because you know what we're kind of learning about these people is okay they they were decadent in one sense like a fashion but they were also decadent intellectually frequently and that's what I love is that it, it this decadence kind of seeped into all aspects of their life yes for sure and like you know it dom it, it kind of under underlies everything that they do well, incredible. Um, yeah, so um, he, he used to, you know, there's a famous apocryphal story where he told the Duke, you know, he said, you call that thing a coat and walked off. My <laughs> 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 senior members of the British aristocracy. Um, and he had a quizzing glass, which he got from France, where he used to just like inspect your outfit with the kind of opera glass, quizzing glass thing. Um, and then kind of make rude judgments about how it wasn't cut correctly or it didn't look didn't look nice. I just love it because he basically has no job, but he judges everyone. Yes, constantly and, and really witheringly, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you have to laugh because it's just so, again, decadent. Well, well you're so right because so, so what happens next is he runs out of money. <laughs> of course. And then, and then he manages to fall out with the Prince of Wales, who's presumably been paying for everything. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there was a story where he said he rang the bell for the servant to bring more champagne. And when he got there, the prince, the prince regent said, could you get him a carriage, please? He's had enough of my champagne. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so when they fell out, they were at a ball and the prince regent uh, acknowledged his, his friends, but not him. 
So he turned to his friend and said, uh, uh, who's your fat friend of the, the Prince Regent? <laughs> In front of everybody. And that was the end of their relationship. <laughs> I mean, that can make you fall out with anyone. But, you know, to say that to the you know future king of England is probably not a very good idea. But, you know, good for him. Um, so if we fast forward now, it's 1816. He now owes thousands of pounds in gambling and, and food bills and, and restaurant bills. So he flees to France. Of course, flee there. To, of course, yeah. Where else does the decadent, the decadent <laughs> bankrupt go? Go to France, or France. Uh, to, to escape the debtor's prison. He lives in Calais for 10 years, um, gambling and spending more money, more promissory notes. But his friends managed to get him appointed to the British consulate in Caen. So he lives there for two years and then suggests, typical Brummel, that the position should be abolished because it's not, it's not enough work, um, hoping that he'll get a better job. But he doesn't. They just abolish the role and then he's unemployed. He, did, he didn't think that through, honestly. <laughs> probably shouldn't have resigned from the regiment when it went up to Manchester. And he probably uh, should have just sat there as the, the, the British consular in court, I think. It would have been better. Um, so this all catches up with him. So in 1835, the French debtors come after him and he serves two years in a debtor's prison. Um, so, you know, this is the tragedy of the guy, you know, the inventor of modern men's fashion from, from the suit to the haircut to the shirt to, to bathing properly. Um, he died penniless and insane from syphilis. It had syphilis for quite a while at a Normandy <laughs> lunatic asylum in 1861. I you know, mean, what an end. you know what is though, like, I think... There, we're going to see a huge amount of this, but most of these people die tragically. These iconic and they, people. And they don't seem to profit from their genius, which I find particularly sad. You know, the guy yeah. invented modern men's fashion and he made no money from it at all. I mean, there's a reason they say the starving artist, although these people, you know, are not an artist in, in the strictest sense of like, let's say a painter. But there's a reason they say that, you know, a lot of times fame comes after your death. I mean, not for all of these people we'll discuss over the years, but, you know, for for a lot of them, it's true. But there's a little bit of a Picasso thing if you want to go down that route for fashion. It was kind of, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't, he was recognized at the time, but I don't think anybody knew the impact he was going to have. And, um, you know, there's, there's a bronze statue of him, which is one of the remaining legacies in German Street, which is off Savile Row in, uh, in central London with where all the tailors are. And mm -hmm. um, it, it airs Brummel's mantra, which is, to be truly elegant, one should not be noticed. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, he was more than noticed by people. They, they cared what he thought and they followed his fashion. But like we were saying, he gained no financial gain at all from this quiet, slow revolution he brought to men's fashion. You know, the fact that people still wear what he set out, you know, kind of 400 years later, to me, is astonishing. It's incredible. And, you know, as a side note, there's a little brief musical legacy. So, you know, I remember this from songs my dad played me. There was various songs with, with Bo Brummel in the, in the band name. There was a Zach White and his chocolate Bo Brummels, which was a U.S. jazz band in the 20s and the 30s. Um, and in the 60s in San Francisco, which we'll be talking about later um, in another episode, uh, the Bo Brummels, they had a U.S. number 15 with a song called Laugh, Laugh. Um, where they kind of paid homage to Brummel. They were in kind of Beatles-style suits with, like, dark turtlenecks underneath, kind of very understated, but, like, looking really, really smart. I love that. Um, Anyone with a turtleneck, man, I can groove with them. I've got very into the turtlenecks during lockdown. Me too. <laughs> They're just comforting and yet so, like, chic and retro. Who doesn't love a good one? 
it, it's 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 always a good shout, I think. Um, and they had another hit in '65, which was called Just a Little, and they wore kind of open neck shirts with again sober sober light coloured suits, but they're all mismatching. They're all wearing different jackets and trousers. And mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the inspiration is even you know there in 1960 and, and 1920. You know, in pop music, people are calling their band after this guy who's you know 350 years ago. <laughs> I mean, he left a legacy. He, it's how fashion and fashion changed the music world and fashion changed our modern sense. I mean, he changed our modern sense of menswear. It's huge. So Bella, we're, we're 42 minutes in. Do you want to keep going or do you want to change? Yeah, your... um, we can take a little break. Okay. So welcome back to Fishnets and Cigarettes. Um, I've just done Bo Brummel, which was a lot of fun. And now we're going to get someone equally as interesting in Oscar Wilde. Take it away, Bella. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Stan, my main man. Um, so when you think of dandyism and decadence, Oscar Wilde is for sure one of the first individuals to come to mind, at least for me. He actually can be considered the first modern celebrity because he was quite attention-seeking, full of wit and arrogance, like Bo Brummel, really. Um, yep. So he was born in Ireland in 1854, and few embody his level of decadence and eccentricity. I mean, he was iconic and, of course, had a tragic end, like we've seen is, is quite a common factor. Yeah, but the tragedy is a theme at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to become even more. And I think even in Stan and my life, we have a lot of that in different ways. So, yes. um, you know, but it's quite romantic. You know, the tragedy somehow makes it romantic. And he's the very definition of where beauty meets tragedy. So he's actually heavily influenced the modern times with his style and attitude. And it really is the attitude that being unique, whether through style uh, or the opinions you hold, is really the best options. So, you know, he's written books like The Picture of Dorian Gray um, and the play The Importance of Being Earnest. And he fully embraced this aesthetic flair. So he grew his hair long. He dressed... Kind of <laughs> <laughs> yes, he... He, it's the ultimate form of, like, I don't conform. It is. And I mean, I love men with longer hair. I've never been attracted, really, to a man with shorter hair. I don't and, you know, know. I, thought, I thought Oscar Wilde wore his hair beautifully. It has this kind of, you know, kind of wispy, you know, it looks very kind of dashing. I, I was a big fan. No, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's, like, perfectly positioned. And, you know, he just dressed flamboyantly and, you know, was just quite an amazing person in that he reminded us, really, that what we pay attention to, what literature we consume, it creates our identity. So I think this is really also something that me and, and Stan are real proponents of, which is that style is very different than fashion. It shows, you know, the, the accumulation of the books you've read, the places you've traveled, the people you love, what you hold dear. So let's celebrate his notorious wit with a few of his iconic lines. So we have... To live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. That is all. I think we both kind of swear by that, to be honest. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, he is full of lines, but it's true. You know, so many of us, we are really surviving. But are we living? Are we following our passions? Are we, you know, pursuing our dreams? You know, I think at the moment where you're in lockdown on and off all the time, it's, you know, it's much harder to feel alive because you have less freedom. Completely. And um, I think the, the second one is, you know, be yourself, everyone else is taken, which is, again, you know, Oscar Wilde and, and us are real, these, these proponents of, you know, be unique. Everyone's going to judge you regardless. And the coolest person in the room is you if you're yourself. 
Well, you know, at school, you know, you're always trying to fit in until about 16 or 18. You're following the herd, you know, following the pack. And actually, you know, I think, you know, everyone is happier when they feel more themselves, when they kind of embrace, you know, the good and the bad, but, you know, they're themselves, which I think is what you mean by, you know, being unique. For being sure. yourself. No, for sure. I mean, I definitely didn't do the smart thing when I was younger and I didn't conform. So it definitely set me up to be bullied <laughs> very badly. But okay. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, though, I'm so happy I didn't conform because if I look back, I'm proud. I was cool. I like brought vinyl to school. I listened to vinyl before it was cool. I wore all retro clothes. And that's how I ended up actually meeting a lot of bands. Like, don't worry, I wasn't a groupie or something. But like, I, 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 I ended up getting in touch with so many cool people because I was myself, but I got bullied really badly. when yeah, I was me too. All the most interesting people I met in music and in sport and all sorts of stuff is when I was most myself, you know. So I love this quote, be yourself. I think it's, it's one of Oscar Wilde's best that you've, you've chosen there. It's great. And then my final quote by him, which kind of touches about what, we, what we've been discussing is, it's what you read when you don't have to that determines what you will be when you can't help it. This is iconic. I don't know if it's like, you know, my sapiosexual nature, but it's so simple and it's true. It's like what we choose to consume intellectually makes us who we are. So it's not for work. It's not because we need to read it, but it's our choice. Going back to what we said at the start, when you said about the curious people and the non-curious people, you know, that's, that's encapsulated in this you know, isn't it, you know, it's, it's, you know, being curious and reading something that maybe you don't know about or challenges you or takes you to a different place, you know, is the thing that, that gives you more chance of, you know, being yourself. Of course. And, you know, it's all about our choices. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre, he said, just, we are our choices. And I feel like when I heard this, like many years ago, I thought that is so simple and true because really it's what we decide and choose which creates our identity. And it, it all relates to this, whether it's literature, the fashion we wear, or all of these kinds of things, it, it creates our identity. So I think Oscar Wilde was great. He was witty and he left us with some of these incredible lines. And um, I think we need to praise him because he was also a leading figure in the aesthetic movement. And they really believed um, in art for art's sake. So rather than having a financial, religious, or like another motivation, they really believed that art should not exist for any other motive other than beauty. So he wasn't motivated by financial gain, even though he loved beautiful things, but by the beautiful. So, I mean, I, I relate to that. You know, beauty moves us. And Always. You know, whether it's a painting or a song or something amazing someone's wearing. Exactly. You know, or, or a sound or a, or a movement or a feeling, you know, that that's, that's what we're striving for, for things that are beautiful. I mean, I named it the Eternal Philocalist for a reason, you know? It's like, <laughs> I'm always, you know, a lover of that. But, um, you know, if we draw on the work of the 18th century philosopher, Immanuel Kant, we, um, we see that here the aesthetes rebelled against the Victorian idea that art was a tool for societal education, even with moral ideas. And I think this is very cool because it represents the direct and kind of ruthless, like cutting from this belief system. Like, no, I'm going to make something just because it's beautiful. It's not to make you think in a different way or to, you know, discuss morality or religion, but I just love velvet, for example. And it's, it's great. It's like strong. 
And like George Costanza, drape yourself in velvet, Bella. <laughs> I honestly, I have a velvet couch. I wear velvet all the time. I'm a fan. I think some of your lingerie has velvet in. I think it definitely does. It definitely does. Definitely does. The ribbons. Beautiful. Um, yes, but um, and you know what's also amazing is that he was one of the first um, famous cases of a person uh, being tried under the La Boucherie Amendment, which made LGBTQ rights illegal or sex acts illegal. Sorry and punishable by two years in hard labor. So there were some people before him who'd gone through it, but he was really the first notable character. Yeah, and you know, homosexuality is it was really, you know, you know, very significantly illegal and prosecuted in the UK. And you know, it was, it was a, he was the kind of most high profile person who was, who fell victim to those laws. Yeah, and you know, he kind of made a fatal mistake. I mean, it, it seems they all do. And he, you know, he he was married. He had a lot of affairs quite openly. And he was like accused of homosexual acts. And everyone was like, okay, just leave it. But at the time, it was quite common to then like rebuttal this in a legal way. And to well, go you ever you want to defend yourself, you know? Yeah. And, and also the, maybe maybe he wanted to do the publicity, you know, to kind of show that this was not real. Yeah. Stupid. Yeah. Or you know, it was stupid. It shouldn't be shouldn't be prosecuting people for their sexuality. You know, making the point. Exactly. And it was just a decadent way, you know, he's going to punish himself to make the point for everybody else. Exactly. And it kind of also shows that you have nothing to hide and it's not real because you're openly like acknowledging it. The problem, though, that was like his downfall, because in that way, they started investigating him and found so many examples and witnesses of his openly homosexual behavior. So he kind of put his head on a platter and served it up to them. So yeah, well, I mean, it's a little bit like Johnny Depp, where he, he did this libel trial. Um, and, you know, I remember saying to my friend at the time, you know, don't sue someone for libel if you did the things that you that, exactly. That did. <laughs> exactly, because you end up just exposing yourself to too much. You just got to like, you know, and all the dirty laundry comes out there, you know, and it's really, you know, oof. no, it was it was bad. And, you know, again, you know, Oscar Wilde spent his final years in exile. Um, a common theme so far. <laughs> Does anyone, hopefully someone in this episode will not end their life in exile and penniless. I know. And, um, you know, he took on the name Sebastian Melmoth. And it's funny because it was inspired partially by St. Sebastian, who'd been martyred for his cause. And this is, you know, something. Oscar Wilde. So Oscar Wilde. I love it. Yeah, he related. <laughs> and the other part was um, the main character in uh, Charles Maturin's novel, Melmoth the Wanderer. A double reference. Oh, as a writer, if you can slip in a double reference, this is even better. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, and, you know, a lot of rock stars actually did that. We'll talk about that later on. But they did often these double references. So, you know, 1900, we're at the last year of, of Oscar Wilde's life. And he was in pretty bad condition. And he joked, you know, my wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One of us has to go. And that later, sounds like COVID, don't you think? <laughs> I'm fighting. I don't have any wallpaper. Every day, I bet the, the, the wallpaper is really fighting a duel with you right now. But what <laughs> color is your wallpaper, Isabella? <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, now I'm, I have no wallpaper, but I'd love to do something extravagant, you know. But and, either way, you're having a duel with it. I mean, I, I'm, I have a nice view of the, the church opposite the Orthodox Church. So I've got some Christmas trees up there, which is very weird for me in Istanbul. So I'm directly not looking at the wallpaper because I will have a duel with it, just like Oscar Wilde did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I hope that you turn out better because later that same year, the wallpaper was there. But it wasn't the case for Oscar Wilde, who died destitute in Paris. So there's something about France. These all these people go to France. They when you die, you like go to France to die penniless. And <laughs> also in ill health. Well, you know, with Brexit, you probably won't be allowed as a British citizen to go to a 
to go to France from the 1st of January to, to die penniless. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could go. I mean, I don't know. But, um, okay, like something that's kind of sweet and dark is that um, his tomb was commissioned by his longtime lover and companion, Robbie Ross. And he was much kinder than his other lover, Alfred Douglas. And his spending actually put Wilde into mass debt. And he was a real nasty guy. Like, I don't really like Alfred Douglas at all. But Robbie... If if people want to hear more about Alfred Douglas, we can explore that in another episode. Definitely. And Robbie Ross was a real amazing person. And when he commissioned this tomb, he actually requested that a small compartment was made for his own ashes when he died. So in 1950, he got his wish and his ashes were joined in the tomb with Wilde. So I don't know. I think that's so romantic. It's so tragic, but beautiful, you know? (laughs) Gorgeous. I know. I love it. So, What a way to conclude the story of Oscar Wilde. Tragically romantic. I love it. I think that's the best things in life. So, um, so Bella's going to take us through into, into the next section. So we're kind of going chronologically here. Okay, so we've yeah. done both Rommel and, and Oscar Wilde and, and Marie Antoinette. And now we're going to do La Belle Epoque. So please take it away again, Bella. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. So we have silk, lace, velvet, feathers, perfumed furs. All the good stuff. (laughs) Too much was never enough, right? Again, maximalism. (laughs) This was a time when Paris was filled with poets, aristocrats, intellectuals, and artists of all kinds. When a snake could be painted gold and worn around your neck. Wow. When absinthe wasn't only a drink, but a color of choice. Oh, I love absinthe green. Me too. Oh my God, iconic. And absinthe green glass, wow. Um, And Maxime's was filled with the most beautiful people in the world. And Maxine's, it was, um, it's a famous restaurant. And if you're ever in Paris, you should look or go look at photos. It's breathtaking online. And also on our Instagram page, we posted a photo. So check that out. Please do. It's beautiful. Maxine's is the, like the most decadent restaurant. <laughs> it's beautiful. And, um, you know, during this time in history, the pursuit of beauty, romance, and eccentricity constituted a way of life. And this really pulls me in because I believe this, this should be the same today. You know, it is a way of life, the pursuit of beauty. Yeah, and you know, at Maxime's, you're pursuing it <laughs> <laughs> just the same way, just with the with the food and the decadence. You are, and this time, you know, it it was such a beautiful and interesting time because when the French president died in his mistress's arms, his death inspired songs of um, of beauty, not mourning. You know. And I, songwriters knew that they had to, they loved this tragic story. It's, it's, it's amazing, really. It's beautiful. And I don't know, I just wish I could experience this time of opulence and ethereal indulgence in a place outside of dreams. You know, it's like, it rips my heart out because it was an incredible period of great prosperity, of growth. I imagine it was the time of the Eiffel Tower and the people strove for greater and greater things. I mean, people were enjoying the scandals of the Moulin Rouge. And while this was happening, they were taking massive strides in technology. Cameras, electric lights, the telephone, the gramophone, the automobile, the dawn of air travel. Everything was born during the period of La Belle Epoque. It was not only a time of speedy progress, but great progress. Things were changing so fast. I mean, you know, it would have been such an exciting time to be alive. The, 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 the improvements that were happening were really quick. You know, I mean, we've had the Internet age, which is a huge change. But, you know, they had a kind of like, you know, an Internet equivalent every every kind of six months in every couple of years. Something amazing. All the things Bella's just said were happening. You know, what an electric time to be alive. No, it was it was complete hedonism mixed with mystique. 
So it's roughly the period um, after the end of the Franco-Prussian War in 1871 to the start of the next war, World War I in 1914. So it's when the golden age of creatives who resided in Paris ruled under the hypnosis of Le Fever or the Green Fairy. And in fact, Oscar Wilde, here he comes again, <laughs> he put it perfectly saying, a glass of absinthe is as poetical as anything in the world. What difference is there between a glass of absinthe and a sunset? Wow, that's beautiful. And, you know, from a Turkish angle, Ataturk, the father of the Turks uh, here, he, they drink raki, they love raki. Oh, God, that makes me sick. He changes your mood. So it's really good socially because he, the, the raki kind of reflects how everyone's feeling. And his line was almost very similar where he said, oh, I love this raki. It makes you want to be a poet. <laughs> but and it's that true. A, that was a politician saying that. So, you know, I love that Oscar Wilde has the same you know, poetical feeling about a glass of absinthe. No, it's true. I mean, there's no denying this drink had great power during this period. Have you had it, the original Wormwood? I have not. I mean, I think actually it's legal in Prague. That is a reason I want to visit. So when I was about 15 or 16, our next door neighbor, we went down to visit them in Cornwall at their holiday place. And he'd got hold of a real bottle of absinthe. <laughs> and uh, uh, so the wormwood, just to explain if people who don't know, the, the wormwood in, in absinthe is hallucinogenic. No. Um, <laughs> so it's not only very alcoholic, but it's also hallucinogenic. And the French way of serving it was you pour it through a sugar cube into champagne. Yeah. Um, which is incredibly decadent in itself, pouring anything into a sugar cube and then into champagne. <laughs> I think that was called the Hemingway. I think he used to drink champagne. Well, and you know, we'll probably come on to Hemingway, dear listener, as well. You know, these little stories are all interlinked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, my experience with absinthe was it's the best thing I've ever drunk. I was, with, with, you know, I drank it with my parents and my brother and <laughs> my next door neighbors. <laughs> um, we were all kind of just in such a, you know, kind of fuzzy, happy space. It was, yeah. And we did it with the with the sugar cubes. We had the recipe um, with the champagne, and it was. You know, I was only about 16, so I, had, I didn't drink regularly. And it, yeah, I still remember the feeling. <laughs> I mean, that's better because I know some people who've, who've drank it and told me stories where they just got so violently ill because they never got, you know, the hallucinogenic never kicked in. But I think those are probably not real absinthe, you know? The, the, the cheap one, you know, is, is, is it's, if it's not made from wormwood, you don't get the same effect. <laughs> no, I agree. But and wormwood is illegal now, too, so... But, you know, but just to go back to what you're saying about Oscar Wilde, you know, look, it made me a poet, but it just took 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. But, you know, this the period of La Belle Epoque actually held a sort of Renaissance revival. And um, it was predominantly like this Art Nouveau period, which was really inspired by flowers, plants, natural curves. And in this time, it was also um, fashion reign supreme, you know. We have designs from the likes of Jean Paquin, and um, they were showcased at the opera and the races. And people actually started to spend a great deal of money on their attire, and they wanted to be seen. So it wasn't only for the nobles. Obviously, you still had to have money. But more people were, um, you know, were wearing things just to be seen, which is more modern, to be honest. Yeah, and people want to be seen now. You know, one of the amazing things about COVID is that we're locked up all the time you know everybody still dresses up when they go out maybe even more so exactly opportunity to be seen of course and i mean this this period was just amazing also in terms of artists you have giovanni baldini he's a really i love this artist from the bottom of my heart he is a quintessential painter of la belle époque 
He has uh, his paintings highlight this time of excess, grandeur, and above all else, fantasy. He had many notable patrons, including uh, including Luisa Casati, who is a really fascinating woman. But we're going to discuss her in the next episode. It's, it's good. It's good. Listeners, it's good. I mean, she, to, to put it in perspective, she used to put belladonna in her eyes to make them shine brighter green. So, And she used to take wow. midnight walks in the nude with just a fur coat. So amazing. Anyways, um, you know, when me and Stan were talking about this period, we were looking for links, of course, <laughs> from this time to modernity. So what did the period of the Belle Epoque leave behind that we embrace today? And we realized that there was actually one major theme that lingered throughout. And it was the democratization of everything. I mean, let's take cigarettes because it's part of our name. They were originally sold as expensive handmade luxury items for the elites of Europe, but everything changed with the advent of the rolling machine. So then there was mass production and the plummeting prices. So it wasn't a limited, you know, expensive treat for the elite, but could be enjoyed by many. You know, in your army rations it, from the times they were they were mass produced, you got cigarettes as part of your ration. You know, it was it was it was a staple. You know, if, you, if you're, a, you're a soldier, you got given cigarettes. You know, outside of your pay because it was considered part of your ration. Sadly, no fishnets, but you know, <laughs> we can we can dream. One can dream. You know, the ten hussars might have fishnets. And you know, like next to this, I mean, it continued. You got food. The brasserie was created at the end of the century, and it allowed many regional dishes to be brought together through a set menu, which anyone could afford. And so, the set menu is still cheap now. You know, they're still so they're 12, 14, 16 euros for three course meal. Exactly. And it again kind of brought this democratic idea that everyone can eat well, no matter their wealth. So you'd go out on a Sunday, you'd put on your Sunday's best with the whole family. You know, like we were saying, to be seen, you know, it was when you went out to be seen in this beautiful brasserie. Exactly. And for one day a week, no matter who you were, you too could feel like a rich person. And this was something, uh, like Stan said, that has lasted to this day. And um, even the kinds of food that served at a brasserie has been brought forth. So they haven't really had any drastic changes and it's filled with classic dishes. Look, you know, you can go now anywhere in France, go to the oldest, the fin de siècle, you know, the Belle Epoque brasserie in the town and you can get a foie gras, you know, the liver pate, uh, uh, confit de canard, the, the, the duck, um, and tart tatin, the, the, the apple tart. Oh my gosh, yum. For about 15 euros, uh, you know, that'll, be, that'll probably be the set menu and you will eat like a king yeah. <laughs> or no, a queen. It's true. And I mean, this kind of transition into democratic everything really continued with entertainment. So in the 1880s, we witnessed the creation of the vaudeville theaters. And this was essentially a presentation of a variety show filled with various ask, uh, acts from burlesque to jazz, um, musical numbers, dancing, or, um, acrobats, illustrated songs, comedians. I mean, it had it all. You know, we have Britain's Got Talent in the UK on our <laughs> television, which is exactly the same format. You know, it's like a it, it, it's people auditioning, but it's exactly what you've said. <laughs> <laughs> Except, okay, let's say it's, it's more There's elegant. It's a hit TV show, you know, I think on ITV. It was more elegant, let's say, back then. And um, an iconic example of this was the Ziegfeld um, Foley's, which was a series of vaudeville-esque productions uh, that ran on Broadway from 1907 to 1931. Again, we'll talk more about this in the next episode, but if you want a little treat, Google some images because it was extremely decadent and beautiful, 
but it included also some comedy. So we really don't have um, this so much in, in I guess, today's um, age. Now, and also there's some other like juicy bits in there. You know, Fred Astaire was brought up doing vaudeville. That's why he was so uh, kind of multi-talented. And, you know, in terms of the musical stuff they did, Paul McCartney uh, listened to a lot of vaudeville from his father, you know, and stuff like, you know, When I'm 64 is pure vaudeville. You know, Maxwell's Silver Hammer and When I'm 64 are pure vaudeville style songs. No, I mean, it's it's amazing. We are definitely all products of our environment, you know. And um, this continued. I mean, in 1895, you have the Lumiere brothers and they developed the um, cinematograph, which was a camera which could record, develop and project film all in one. And with this, they were able to start screening films in cinema houses for the masses. I mean, imagine what a change, you know, for, for people who like visual, you know, the visual decadence of cinema. You can you can spend, you know, 50p or whatever, to, to, to go in and, and watch, you know, something, you know, mind-blowing. I mean, it was it's also fascinating because in the beginning, they didn't believe their invention was actually anything substantial, but more of a novelty. Right. Um, so they thought cinema wouldn't really have a future, but lucky for us and the likes of Godard and Truffaut and any kind of cinematic genius, they were wrong. And, and you know, I really hope that after COVID, cinema still has a future because, you know, we, we can't go to the cinema and they've delayed all the releases. Here in Istanbul, there's a cinema called Rex around the corner from where I'm staying in Kadikoy, mm -hmm. and they're demolishing it because they've had to sell up. No, I can't. I mean, you know, they say like cinema lovers are sick people, but we're an incredible sick people, man. <laughs> we well, you know, I just hope that, you know, I think it would be great. You know, we might want to look in future episodes about, you know, movies to screen when we can all go to the cinema again or go to an outdoor cinema. Of course. And there's also been this transition, like cinema used to be much more artsy and now it's kind of like a mass entertainment. But this is, again, a topic for um, another day. But, well, <laughs> <laughs> Bella. Um, but, you know, this invention provided an affordable option. So, you know, before this, it was only operas or plays, which were frequented just by the wealthy. But now you could pay a, a really minuscule price and, and be entertained. Um, and also, this is when the newsreel started coming on. So um, when you attended the cinema, the public would be kept up to date with the newsreel prior to screening films. And this was super modern. And Stanley actually pointed this out. It was almost like a prequel to the Internet, because if you didn't want to read the newspaper, you could just sit back and watch it in a movie theater. And, you know, you got it. You know, now you get the adverts you know, and, and the previews of other movies. But then you would just get a news bulletin. Exactly. And they used this for World War World War One, really. And yeah, that's how you got your news about the war. And it was probably, you know, you got some visuals, too. You know, they were filming stuff. So rather than just see a picture and read a newspaper story, you got an actual visual from 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 the trenches. No, it, it was amazing. And, you know, this um this democratization also happened in fashion. So, you know, of course, the rich and elite still wore lavish dress and they would parade around with it. But towards the end of the 19th century, things began to change and the average person could now wear fashions that were previously only destined for the rich. Of course, you know, depending on your lifestyle, certain fabrics were favored over others. But still, regardless, it was now possible to wear what you wanted. So if we look back even further, you know, this is the history nerd in us all, um, <laughs> in, in both of us, I guess. In medieval times, only the rich and aristocratic men who were part of the royal court could legally wear certain luxury um, fabrics and even specific colors. Mad, can you imagine now? Like, you know, only only certain people can wear leather. Or... <laughs> but it, it was really crazy because under these rules outlined in the Sumptuary Code in the UK, 
um, which was active until the 17th century, um, which is like super nerdy. But if you weren't part of this society and wore certain items of clothing, it was actually illegal. Like you could well, be we're tried. We're living at a time where every, almost everything is illegal, dancing and singing. You know, could you imagine if certain clothes were outlawed due to COVID? Oh. I mean, technically dancing is illegal now too. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, we've, um, but okay, of course it was no longer illegal in the period of La Belle Epoque. There was still a great deal of societal pressure to dress within your ranking. And and funnily enough, at this time, you see like these people have small toy dogs on ornate leashes. They were all the rage. And we still have this in the modern time. Of course, it's now they're real. It's not new people. <laughs> no, no. And it was this accessory that, you know, showed you were cool and and we had um, the Belle Epoque was amazing because we saw the first modern sequins. They made a grand appearance and are still used heavily in fashions today. Sequins are amazing. I remember being a child and doing, you know, um, textiles and the way the sequins kind of catch the light. You know, as a child, I was really like amazed by it. It was amazing. I mean, especially I think we all have just like an iconic sequin item we love and cherish. And, um, you know, I think we have to remember that this was a really small group of people again. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's very elite. Yeah, so like Mark Twain described this Gilded Age as a thin veneer hiding systematic problems. So there was discontent among the working classes, political tensions between nation states, militarism, imperialism, uh, an arms race. And obviously by 1914, it came to a head. You know, and there's a, there's a lot of, you know, you know, labor and, you know, communism, Marxism has appeared and, you know, the worker is being mistreated and is protesting for the first time, you know, alongside the contrast of this decadence, you know, the average person's life, like you're saying, is, is difficult. No, I'm completely. And, you know, what we see is, you know, towards the end of this beautiful period, the war began. And uh, this decadence still lingered for a while. You know, you have French World War I pilots. They would go to war by day, come back and dine at night at opulent Maxime's in Paris for their evening supper. I mean, how decadent is that? You go to war and come back and eat at, a, at an amazing restaurant. And it's, it's why the fighter pilots were the most, you know, romantic figures. No, it's, it's completely beautiful. And, you know, if someone died that day, they would still set their place at dinner and they'd put a red rose on their plate. And again, it's so romantic. It's very French. And it just makes me so nostalgic for these times we'll never get to experience. But Maxime's is still open. So if you're in Paris, unless it's closed recently, but to my knowledge, it's still open. So if I think one time I checked too, but we can double check that. Let's get our checkers on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, if you're in Paris, please go pay homage to visit this place because it's iconic. Um, it's an amazing establishment in history. And I think what we've seen here is there's this striking theme in the times of opulence where death is just around the corner. And it reminds us that to truly live, death must always be near. Yeah. And, you know, th that leads really nicely into, you know, the, the Great War and Spanish flu. So, you know, a hundred years ago, we were also in the grip of a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic. Um, but, you know, this time with coronavirus, we didn't have the first world war. The Great War, as they called it, uh, just before, um, you know, that's 15 million people died, 15 million soldiers, uh, sorry, 10 million soldiers and 5 million civilians. That's 15 million people just in the war. And almost every family has lost a husband, a brother, a father, a son. There were so few men left that women struggled to find a husband. Uh, you know, at dances, there would be hundreds of women queuing up to dance with 20 men because that was all there was left. 
Oh my gosh. I mean, what a time to be alive. And then straight after that, you get Spanish flu, which kills 50 million people from 1918. Um, and Spanish flu was a really genuinely deadly pandemic. It, it swept across the globe by demobilized soldiers. The, the number 50 million is astonishing when you compare it to the COVID deaths. Um, its second wave was even more deadly, uh, you know, similar to now, but deadly. The mutation we have now is contagious, but it's not deadly. The second wave of Spanish flu targeted younger people, 20 to 40, and it could kill you in an hour. Um, even worse, even more tragic, it killed pregnant women. They were vulnerable because their immune systems were, were are enhanced due to pregnancy, so that they're, they're, it's, Spanish flu is worse for them. So things like stillbirths increased by 26%. Um, and all over the world, there were orphan towns where all the mothers of all the children had died from Spanish flu. Um, it's a really tragic kind of dark time when you come out of the First World War and out of Spanish flu. Um, so, you know, I've, I've got a little story here where we can link it back to, to kind of modernity. So um, a famous author, I won't, I won't spoil it. I'll tell you who he is and what he wrote at the end of the little story. Um, so this is, you know, 1918-1919 in Manchester, the place where Bo Brummel wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> um, a soldier returns home from the war. His name was Joseph Wilson. He was in the pay corps, so he didn't fight. He was administered money. Uh, but he was also a music hall pianist, so he would have played vaudeville, like we just talked about. And he sold encyclopedias, you know, so obviously he took Oscar Wilde's advice about you know, reading things. <laughs> to, <laughs> reading things. I feel like that's yeah. general life advice, read stuff. Oh, but, you know, but to, 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 to an encyclopedia at that time was like the internet, it's like Wikipedia. Imagine imagine owning Wikipedia when others didn't. <laughs> You'd feel like, I mean, a genius. Yeah, and as a salesman, you have access to it, so you can read it all the time. Anyway, so it, it, this, this guy, Joseph Wilson, his, his wife, Elizabeth, was 30. He came home from the war four long years. He finds her sprawled dead on the bed. She's swollen and bloated. And, and in her arms is their daughter, who's, who's died as well. And only this boy, John, was left in his cot. He was the only member of the family left. And John was raised by his maternal aunt until his father remarried. And he always felt very resented by his father. And this guy's name was Anthony Burgess, who wrote Clockwork Orange. Um, you know, so the, the, what happened with the Great War and Spanish flu affected the generation that came afterwards. Um, and, you know, I doubt Anthony Burgess wouldn't have written a book as dark and as dystopian as Clockwork Orange if this hadn't been his childhood. I mean, that's a huge topic, again, that we're like a product of our environments, right? If you face huge tragedy, you're probably going to be affected. And, and when you create your own art, it's going to have a tinge of whatever you've experienced. Yeah, you know, and then the context is always so important. Um, so I've got another little story, and then we're, we're, we're going to move on to the bright young things who were the kind of generation who everything we've just talked about, about this kind of darkness from the First World War and Spanish flu, they're trying to do a counterpoint of kind of decadent lightness. Um, so, but the, the other story that's interesting is, you know, in, in Madrid, because uh, it's called Spanish flu. It's called Spanish flu because Spain was the only country that wasn't in the First World War in Europe. So they reported on Spanish flu, whereas all the countries under wartime censorship didn't report the cases. I mean, that's crazy. Yes, it's unbelievable. So everybody started calling it Spanish flu. But in Madrid, they had a different name for Spanish flu because, of course, they didn't call it that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's like then, now, you know, certain people associate things with like a country, but it's not really right. 
yeah, you have to do your research, um, like me and Bella have done, you know. So this this song was called, it was called The Soldier of Naples, um, and it was from an operetta called The Song of Forgetting. So a, a Spanish newspaper remarked that this flu was just as catchy as the song. <laughs> it's just the so Spanish called Spanish flu the the soldier of Naples, uh, the Naples soldier, and um, the Napoli soldier. So yeah, in the rest of Europe, it was censored, um, and then. You know, a week after this this uh, story broke, where, where they're calling it the Soldier of Naples, the King of Spain and and his Prime Minister and a lot of the Cabinet Ministers all fell ill to Spanish flu. You know, there's been so many. Uh, Macron has it at the moment. You know, Boris had it. Trump had it. Um, you know, it was far worse to have Spanish flu than to have coronavirus. No, I mean you could die in 24 hours. Yeah, I mean sometimes in an hour if you if you were really susceptible in the second wave. It's unbelievable. Um, so, you know, just doing some parallels to now, you know, some people wore masks. Eventually they started to do masks um, and people resisted, you know, just like now with anti-vaxxers and stuff. And there was a, 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 a San Francisco. They had an anti-mask league. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, Google photos of them. Real interesting. Yeah. I mean, if, if you want to know more about that, we can do a little bit on it. It's, you know, it's really interesting for now. Um, and Australia closed its borders back then, just as just as they did now. <laughs> very effectively yeah. um, but the point we're trying to make for, for going into the, the next kind of decadent people we're going to deal with is that life was cheap you know 15 million people have died in the war 23 million people are mutilated or injured and 50 more million people have died from spanish flu you know this is a really dark moment um in, in time so it's against this backdrop that the bright young things appear so evelyn war the writer pr pronounced the best definition he said, there was between the wars a society cosmopolitan, sympathetic to the arts, well-mannered, above all ornamental, even in rather bizarre ways, which for want of a better description, the newspapers called High Bohemia. This is iconic. I mean, in the most ornamental, in the most bizarre ways, incredible. Yeah, and, you know, bohemian is another word we haven't explored, but, you know, that, that, that had a kind of dandy you know, uh, you know, uh, Dolce Vita uh, kind of kind of feel to it. So the newspapers are calling them, as well as the bright on things, which is the name that stuck, calling them high bohemia. I mean, um, it is. It's like laissez-faire, but in the most decadent way. Yes, exactly. Um, so, you know, this is a very pessimistic age. You know, there's a lot of the writers at the time say, you know, you're looking over your shoulder at the black dog, you know, the elephant in the room of the First World War and Spanish flu. You know, so many people are dead in your immediate family. And, and your immediate friends' families, that there's this kind of darkness penetrating everything. Um, so the people who were in the Bright Young Things, who were they? They were the generation too young to fight in the war. So, you know, they probably also felt guilty that they weren't there and that they survived. Um, so they're infused with this spirit of carpe diem, seize the day, um, and, you know, an element of escapism because of the cost of, of everything that's gone before. So they were mostly young aristocrats. But many of them had fallen on hard times. God, um, to be an aristocrat <laughs> falling on hard times. Here comes sorry. the theme again. Here comes the theme yeah, again. And also, um, sometimes you just gotta like you gotta laugh, and it's like, you know, it, I don't know. Troubles are different for everyone, I suppose. But financial troubles hurt the most, don't they? Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and these, these young aristocrats, there were um, death duties the British government put in place after the First World War, um, and they were ruthlessly applied. So. A family that lost the father in the trenches, but also lost the two eldest sons. They were taxed on the inheritance three times. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. So there wasn't much left after that. Um, so, you know, so that these kind of hard up aristocrats 
uh, joined by these kind of ambitious middle-class youngsters. You know, Cecil Beaton, the photographer, is a kind of good example of that, where, you know, they wanted to photograph these people because they were beautiful and decadent and kind of interesting. And, you know, they were able to kind of, you know, advance their careers. You know, this was like their first, you know, art foundation project or something, you know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so, you know, Bella had said there are only 500 people in the swinging 60s. And, you know, by the most generous estimate, there were never more than 2,000 people um, in, associated with the bright young things. Um, you know, so for women, this is a bit of a change of a time as well. So there's a, a freedom for women because there's a reduction in men. You know, they've been, they've been doing more work during the war, you know, doing trams and, and trains and things they weren't allowed to do working for the post office because there was a lack of men. Um, so, you know, there's this kind of new independence with women. And actually, the bright young things started with the girls. Um, they used to have wild treasure hunts uh, on London's very new public transport service on the tube and the buses and the trams. And they'd run around London, you know, in outrageous outfits, shouting at each other and, and searching for these uh, treasure hunt items. Um, you know, they were all terribly well connected and they knew everybody in the upper British society. So the things they'd be looking for would be like the prime minister's pipe or a pair of corsets owned by a famous actress. Oh, I um, love it. I love that. So these are really decadent items in themselves. Yes. And effectively, they run their own PR. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why. It's from the tabloid press, and they were friends with the journalists. Oh. So Robert Graves' brother, Charles, and Tom Dryberg, who became a communist MP <laughs> later on. Um, <laughs> what, a, what a life change. I know, who wrote these gossip columns for the Express, for the Daily Express, which is now like a very pro-Brexit and like Diana conspiracy theory newspaper. Oh, <laughs> okay. well, you know, times are tough, you change. Well, you know, they did a good job. Um, so they had their own photographer, who I've just mentioned, Cecil Beaton. Um, he was the royal photographer after this, and he was in The Crown, um, you know, kind of very old, where they're replacing him. Um, but, you know, he's still in our you know, the zeitgeist today, you know, Cecil Beaton features in The Crown. I think that's so cool. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, like, but they, it gets better, better. So like, they, threw, <laughs> they threw elaborate fancy dress parties. They drank to excess and they did drugs, hashish, cocaine, heroin. Mm, they okay. listened to jazz and they danced all night and they were rebelling, basically, against the social norms. Okay. okay. Um, they had their own slang. So they used the kind of camp phrases that we still use now, like darling, and divine. And, you know, bogus. I love um, all those words. But, you know, beautiful words, but words that we still use. Of you course, know? yeah. Well, 100 years later, you know, 90 years later, we still use them. So, you know, they were also gender bending and sexually fluid. You know, they kind of pursued love and desire without thinking about people's sex. And, um, you know, they just did what they wanted. Um, you know, and they were happy to break the law if they wanted to have homosexual relationships, male and female. Um, Stephen Tennant, who was kind of the poster boy, was very androgynous. He kind of had a David Bowie kind of, you know, androgyny about him. Um, and his brother, David, opened the Gargoyle Club um, at 69 Dean Street in Soho, which is probably closed now <laughs> to Soho to, due to coronavirus. <laughs> For sure, yeah. It was a kind of decadent kind of club where they used to hang out. Um, and Stephen Tennant also had a kind of a relationship and a sexual relationship, uh, we're told, with their the war poet Siegfried Sassoon, Sassoon. So, you know, if, you're, if you've done English literature in England, you've, you've done the war poets and you know a lot about Siegfried Sassoon. <laughs> He's a kind of, you know, celebrity figure. He threw his, his uh, medal he got in the war in the Thames in protest. And he wrote, you know, very kind of bleak war poetry um, about how terrible it was. 
Um, so, you know, they've got all the kind of, you know, elements of mixing together here, you know, the, the fashion, photography, you know, beautiful people. Uh, but they also had, um, oh, so Stephen Tennant, I should tell you, you know, he allegedly spent 17 years in bed. Wait, like he didn't? Of his life where he just refused to leave. I mean, I'm sure that's <laughs> not, not true, but it's, it seems very decadent. I mean, you know, Marianne Antoinette and him could have shacked up and had a very happy life. But, you know, <laughs> you know. eating brioche. I mean, um, he had to go to the restroom, I'm assuming. Yeah, but you had, had bedpans then. so you. Oh, you, my God. But you know yeah. what? This is no longer decadent. This is like medical. You know, I don't know. It's become lazy and indulgent. Yes, and too far. There were, there were some people in the set who kind of did stuff. So they had some writers. <laughs> did Edward stuff. War, who, who did The Bright Young Things, his novel is called Vile Bodies, which is still quite popular today. And there's a TV uh, program as well, I think, and probably a movie. So if you're interested, you can read Vile Bodies by Evelyn War. Um, Anthony Powell, uh, he did a dance to the music of time, which is, I think, the longest set of novels in one uh, on one theme in, in English. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> okay. huge, like, door stoppers. Um, Nancy Mitford and her sister. Her sister fell in love with uh, Edward Mosley and loved Hitler and used to hang out with Hitler. <laughs> Edward Mosley was Britain's fascist leader. Oh, great, um, great. So there's some scandal and some drama here. Uh, there was a painter, Rex Whistler, a uh, composer, uh, William Walton, and also the poet, John Betjeman. There's a statue of John Betjeman in St Pancras Station. If you're ever going through, there's the two lovers, a huge statue of them kissing. And then there's a, a statue of Tubby, John Betjeman, <laughs> who is a, 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 a nice poet. Um, and then one of the other characters was uh, on, the, on the female side. There was Elizabeth Ponsonby, who drank herself to death by 40. So I say cheers, cheers to Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> Do not follow in her footsteps, guys. Sounds like she was made for coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Brenda Dean Paul, who was known in the newspapers as the society drug addict. <laughs> Great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the first glamorous drug addict. Um, you know, they were an eclectic bunch and they pushed the boundaries. So what they most liked to do, like most decadent people, was have parties. So, you know, these included things like they had a fake wedding ceremony that was a false wedding and the press were, you know, absolutely scandalized that they were making a mockery of marriage. But, you know, like we were saying earlier, Bella, if there's, you know, 400 women and you can only choose between five men, you know, I think I would be mocking marriage at this point. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'd be like, what kind of options are these? I, yeah, mean, maybe I have no options like... here. Like you know, this, this marriage doesn't sound so good right now. Um, so they did a fake art exhibition as well. But the two most famous ones, I'm going to do three of them. Um, so the first infamous one was the Bath and Bottle Party, which was the 13th of July, 1928 at St. George's Baths in London. So this is uh, from Dreiberg, the, the Express columnist. He says, bathing costumes of the most dazzling kinds and colours were worn by the guests. He gravely reported, dancing took place to the strains of a Negro orchestra and the, the, the hardy leapt into the bath of which the water had been slightly warmed. Roving across the assembled throng, Dreiberg's copy-hungry eye noted, great rubber horses and flowers floated about in the water, which was illuminated by colored spotlights. Many of those present bought two or three bathing costumes, which they changed in the course of the night's festivities. So you know, there's the Oscar costume change. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta appreciate that. Yeah, they, they probably did it first. Um, Cocktails were served in the gallery where the cocktail mixers evidently found the heat intolerable. So they also donned bathing costumes at the earliest opportunity. So even the waiters are putting on swimming costumes. 
um, and they made a special cocktail christened the bathwater cocktail, which was invented for the occasion. Um, Miss Elizabeth Ponsonby, who is <coughs> shortly going to drink herself to death, she looked, <laughs> she looked most attractive in a silk bathing costume, of which the lower part was red, the bodice rainbow-like with stripes of blue and red. Mm. And amid much preening and carousing, a certain amount of bona fide swimming took place. Brenda Dean Paul remembered Mary Ashley Cooper <coughs> giving some really wonderful exhibitions of diving. <laughs> what does this even mean? <laughs> <laughs> she's, you know, they're, they're diving into the bath and they're going over oh, she did it so well <laughs> you just you swam so lovely <laughs> <laughs> well they had the pool as well but yeah it's it's so old-fashioned english um so a group of mayfair debutantes remained in the pool the whole time ducking you know putting them under the water those who came their way um meanwhile an older category of guests looked more or less benignly on the only available seats were in the changing cubicles so by this time, the older generation of dowagers, dowagers are women who can't find a husband, which is, you know, socially stigmatized. But, you know, when there's five to four, 400, <laughs> the odds aren't great. Yeah, I know. Nothing seems to surprise them anymore. Uh, looking back on the scene, the baronet's daughter could still picture this group of elderly ladies, quite contented like plump hens in, plump hens in cubby holes, sitting in dim solitude with lorgnettes fixed at the dripping parade. God, I don't even know what a lorgnette is. Do you know, Isabella? I don't know. I mean, I can Google real quick. Why don't you Google? Okay, I'm going to take it. I mean, it sounds so G-N-E-T-T-E-S. So it's some very decadent thing. Okay, yes. It is kind of, ah, lorgnettes, it must come from lunette because it's a pair of spectacles with a handle. Oh, wow. So like the the quizzing glass, like Bo Brummel had. Yes. I mean, except with actually looks more like a modern day eyeglass. But yes. Beautiful. So there they are watching all these young people carousing. So the party continues beyond dawn. Policemen had to be brought in to encourage the final guests to leave. Passerbys on their way to work were startled by the scantily clad young men and women in search of buses and taxis. Much more disquieting from the angle of newspaper moralists was the musical accompaniment. So this is direct quote. Great astonishment and not a little indignation is being expressed in London over the reports that in the early hours of yesterday morning, a large number of society women danced in bathing dresses to the music of a Negro band at a swim and dance gathering organized by some of Mayfair's bright young people, the Sunday Chronicle observed. A well-known society hostess remarked her principal objection to the party was the colored element. So, you know, by listening to jazz and having a, 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 a band of black jazz musicians, they were breaking the rules. Yeah, it's completely different to today's today's age. Thank goodness, you know. Oh, but you know, but they were the they were you know they were very decadent. But actually, that was something really positive. You know, that they they said we're going to listen to this music. There's no reason why we shouldn't. And you know, that changes the opinions. You know, it challenges the conventional wisdom. Of stage course, point. which is great. I mean, that they because you know what it is that they really just did what they did for the love of it. Again, it comes this idea of like art for art's sake. They didn't care, you know, what color your skin was, what gender you were, what, you know, they just loved what they loved. And I think that's a beautiful concept. And I think also, you know, one of the things that we like about fashion and music and kind of literature and stuff that we're discussing is that it's colorblind. Mm -hmm. Totally. Because there's so much influence from everyone. Yeah. So anyway, there's more parties. There's two more. It's not as much detail. That was the, that was when I had the juiciest quotes from, um, So they'd ended the Mozart party on the 29th of April, 1930, in New Burlington Street Galleries, which is a stone's throw away from uh, Beau Brummel's statue on German Street. So if you're passing, you could you can see both. God knows what New Burlington Street Galleries is now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't checked. Um, 
And Bella actually posted a really beautiful photo from this, uh, from the Mozart party on the Instagram page. So if you want to have a look, it's up there. Very decadent. Marie Antoinette would have been proud. <laughs> um, so it was designed to mark Mozart's trip to London in 1764. They used a cookbook from, you know, uh, from, from uh, French, French royalty, and it cost £3,000, which is about £180,000 in today's money. Um, which is a lot <laughs> <laughs> it is for a, lot a party. Of yeah. um, David Tennant came dressed as John, Don Giovanni, um, and everyone was in full Regency dress, which you can see on the Instagram page. And at the end of the party, they posed with workmen who were drilling the streets in their, <laughs> in their workmen's uniforms. Oh, my um, God. Russell Beaton gleefully took a load of their photos, which you can also find online. Um, and then the final straw was um, the Red and White Ball, 21st of November 1931 in Regent's Park. So we've had the Wall Street crash now. Now, when we go on to next week's one, you know, there was this brief period, you know, the flappers and Weimar Germany, where there was this brief happiness after the, the death of the First World War and Spanish flu. But, you know, the Wall Street crash meant suddenly everybody was very poor. So you not only had all this tragedy, but 10 years later, you had a huge kind of, you know, financial dip. I mean, so sounds, it sounds so much like what France looked like again at Marie Antoinette, right? There was like, exactly, and it triggers all this, this kind of these responses, you know, yeah. and the create amazing fashion and stuff. It's it's so interesting that this, the parallels. And um, so by this point, the press are getting a bit grumpy with them that there's just kind of no point to what they're doing. They're just kind of being decadent. And um, so this is the last straw one. So it's red and white theme. So strawberries, lobster, you know, white ski and bathing suits. Uh, Brenda Dean Paul, the society drug addict. She was arrested for brawling and also for drug possession. For brawling, what a woman. Yeah, I think she was fighting another woman as well, which is <laughs> not particularly, you know, uh, bright young things. And um, so the Bystander magazine slammed the ill-bred extravagance being flaunted by the rich partygoers. So, you know, the excess in the end is denounced by the press and that's the kind of end of the movement. Um, so, you know, the bright young things to conclude were a kind of, you know, a reaction to the devastation and carnage of the Great War and Spanish flu. They provided a light relief from the gloom of the interwar era after, uh, you know, all this death. Um, and they spawned some talented writers some photographers some artists. And yet, you know, the whole experience feels a little bit lightweight, you know, compared to, you know, the impact that Oscar Wilde and Beau Brummel and Marie Antoinette had. You know, to have had a kind of long-lasting impact. You know, um, Evelyn Waugh's book, Vile Bodies, People Still Love. Um, but, you know, if we're going to try and tie all this together, I'd love to know what you think, Bella. You know, I think, you know, of all the ones we've covered today, the Bright Young Things are probably the kind of most flimsy. You know, that, that their legacy is probably the least powerful. But, you know, we've covered some powerful legacies. Yeah, I would agree. You know, I mean, they were obviously, you know, um, over the top. They had eccentricity and, you know, they were ostentatious and just wonderful in a lot of ways. But I do think they they had less depth to them in a sense that, you know, Oscar Wilde changed our perceptions of attitude. Bo Brummel also you know, pushed our ideas um, about, you know, maybe we can still have the best, but we can be more simplistic and understated. And I think these people, also Marie Antoinette, in the way that she was just completely frivolous, but so iconic that she's been remembered all these years later, I think they may um, have been a little, a little bit more substantial. But I still think that each one of these movements reminds us of the same general theme, which is, again, you know, periods of lack and, you know, a kind of darkness lead loss, to, you know, loss, yeah, they lead to these, these kinds of um, reactions, right? 
that are over the top, that are focusing on lighter things. And again, an escape to fantasy. And that goes back to our initial question is, you know, what after what's going to happen after COVID? Will we have kind of a 1920s resurgence of our own? I mean, I would love to see it. You know, I just I worry about the financial impact as much as anything, because, you know, after the First World War, it was it was the uh, the, the Wall Street crash in 29 that kind of killed off these the, the bright young things and those kind of movements. Um, but yeah, look, it's a question we're going to keep exploring as we go through the history. You know, I, I think you and I maybe both would like to see some kind of reaction, you know, some new fashion. You know, we've done masks in different colours. But apart from that, you know, COVID spawned no new fashion. No. Um, and almost no new music either. No, there's some music I saw, like, I think from Korea, but nothing that's really affecting the modern world. Well, iconic, you know, you know, Bob Marley song or, you know, Queen song, you know, style song about, about coronavirus. And, you know, when was the last time the entire world was in the same situation? No, it's true. And, you know, over, we just started, me and Stan, but we're going to talk about a bunch of interesting topics. So rock and roll, um, the 1920s, 1930s jazz culture, uh, World War II, 1950s music, um, literature like Jack Kerouac, ideas of freedom, the leather jacket, uh, dandyism, Renaissance resurgence in the 1960s, the Dolce Vita and French and Italian Golden Age, you know, like Brigitte Bardot, Jane Birkin, Alain Delon, uh, cigarettes in counterculture, the miniskirt, the Beatles, you know, 1970s disco. I mean, um, it's a whole episode, guys, because it was so important. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're going through it all. We are. We're going to cover it all. So we would love for you guys to join us on this, you know, investigation of decadence and help us really understand and answer the question of, you know, how did music and fashion change the world? And, you know, on top of that, if you have ideas that you'd like us to explore or things you think we've missed or things you'd like more detail on, you know, please tell us, you know, we, we, you know, the point of doing this is so that people, you know, enjoy listening to it. So, you know, me and Bella have been quite rigorous about the, the, the topics we're covering. But, you know, if there's anything else you want or you want to share with us or ask us to explore other things, like please feel free. I think we'd love to do that. So thank you guys for joining us thus far. And we'll hope you'll tune in uh, next week. And um, keep on taking this journey with us. Fishnets to cigarettes. Bye. Signing up. Bye-bye.